Yes, and welcome to our new Corona meeting 127, uh, the box of tricks. We are being confronted with a number of things, the energy crisis, uh, supposedly uh, danger of war, of health and medication and many other things that are happening at the same time and at the moment you really don't know what is real what is being exaggerated and that's why we want to take a look into the depth or undepth that are being shown uh, we have a number of interesting things today uh, we are looking uh, for Cominati and spike bags that are supposed to be available for children at the age of six months. Um, we are looking at the energy supply with the situation of Russia and uh, Ukraine. And then we are back to the subject of virus, yes, no. We want to take a look at it uh, from a substantial point of view, fundamentally. And then, of course, we have the question how are the unvaccinated doing uh, compared to the ones that have been vaccinated? Very interesting results, uh, and we're looking at the findings. Uh, something special today, you can join us as a viewer. You can uh, ask questions. If you go to onlinequestions.org, you can put in our meeting, number 12700. Uh, 12,700, that's our number. If you put in that number, you can ask questions and then uh, we will ask these questions to our participants. And I should say uh, we should start right away. We have Renate Holzeisen today. Uh, she is a lawyer um, in Southern Tyrol and she is also an economist like me. And she is uh, talking about a very interesting subject that we should look at uh, earlier because the EMA is now uh, recommending um, the approval of Corminati, uh, which they do very rapidly considering the problems of uh, damage that is being done by that. I would like to uh, say that uh, the biggest crime uh, against humanity after the Second World War uh, is now uh, reaching completion through the approval uh, of the vaccine for babies uh, from six months uh, upwards because we had an approval for children from five years or six years uh, old before, uh, before that uh, for children from 12 years old. Uh, and that is something um, that uh, as long as uh, we uh, are not uh, successful in stopping this, and uh, particularly through uh, the information that is necessary, particularly for parents, because it's ultimately the parents who decide whether to uh, expose uh, their children to genetic, genetically uh, manipulated experimental uh, injection or not. And uh, that's why it's ultimately the parents uh, that need to put the brakes on, because until by uh, to date, institutional representatives, uh, the approval authorities, uh, not only, they are obviously acting <coughs> uh, 
not in the interest of the general population, but uh, in the interest of uh, the pharma conglomerates. And uh, if the financial uh, structure of the EMA, if you look, take a look at that, it isn't surprising. And, uh, and if you take into account who is uh, uh, sitting on these boards, uh, and who is uh, who switches from the farm industry to the approval authorities and uh, back? This is uh, a situation which uh, uh, should be uh, stopped uh, in general because it can only lead to massive uh, conflicts of interests and corruption, and uh, that is the result that we are seeing here. We know that uh, for. Uh, since uh, December 2020, we have seen a massive attack of these people, uh, and initially uh, it was the old people uh, who uh, were, had to be protected, and now uh, uh, the the plan is completed to by uh, obviously. Uh, to give a genetically modified stamp to the entire population. And uh, in view of the circumstance that uh, children, that it has been demonstrated that children have no problem at all to uh, to to deal with what is still uh, called COVID-19. And let me uh, let me uh, uh, emphasize here that the original virus uh, no longer exists, um, and even that was, uh, uh, according to a recently uh, published study by John Ioannivis, uh, it was by far not as uh, ten times less dangerous than than uh, was uh, assumed uh, at the beginning. And for the children and uh, young people, uh, it wasn't dangerous at all. And we have, uh, up until today, we we only have uh, uh, the publication of the European uh, Approval Authority, MA, uh, where uh, based on the assessment of the Human Medicine uh, Committee, this uh, this this substance that uh, was based on the original uh, SARS uh, substance, I refuse to call it uh, a vaccine, is now uh, as a triple dose. As a as a bi basic immunization uh, to be used, so um, even we as lawyers who are not uh, trained in uh, science, although um, in view of the circumstance that that we have been uh, investigating this in detail for the last three years. Uh, we know much more than the average of the medical profession as the uh, doctors uh, uh, continue to uh, confirm. And this is so crazy that uh, um, every uh, uh, critical observer should notice that something uh, that is based on the original virus and uh, in view of the, the fact that this is no longer in circulation and has not been for some time, that 
you can now officially announce that that now uh, something uh, like that is available for small children as a basic immunization uh, because uh, it is thought to be appropriate and uh, necessary. We have no... Uh, the, I, I find them shameless. Uh, they uh, make no effort at all to even uh, give them the appearance of, uh, of a scientific um, approach. It is... Uh, the word scandalous uh, does not do justice to the dimension of uh, this. And uh, we, as lawyers who uh, uh, deal with this, will certainly um, use all means at our disposal and at all levels uh, to um, uh, fight against it and reject it. Uh, the same goes for the definite approval uh, the so-called standard approval of the two mRNA vaccines. The same applies. How we proceed uh, in detail, we will only explain once we have submitted it, but that would, that we have to take uh, action against it at all levels is uh, not something that uh, is in doubt, because here we are uh, uh, talking about the future of 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 the medicines approval and if that is uh, continues to 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 stay st stand we are uh, exposed to uh, national and eu uh, medical authorities that uh, uh, reject the fundamental principles uh, of uh, the uh, medical law with uh, nonchalance that, uh, you know, now makes you wonder uh, what you what, what, what you can believe. I'm uh, in, uh, of the opinion now that I think uh, with regard to other medicines as well, it would be a good thing to take a closer look because if we observe what's happening in this case, we need to assume that uh, the medical authorities, the approval authorities, uh, uh, create facts that, that contravene uh, current law and the rules of scientific um, assessment. Well, it's almost like the Wild West that is uh, opening up for us. I mean, that's a scenario. Apparently, they can sell whatever they want. It's just a farce. It's a complete farce. Uh, and it is really, uh, we are in a situation now, and I call them a criminal gang. Uh, if something like that is possible, that uh, such a substance, uh, with the cancerogenity, uh, the toxicity, the mutagenicity, uh, is is it was it was not studied. I.e., no um, tests were uh, performed uh, that cannot be excluded at all. And these are essential uh, 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 facts. Then this is something that is simply well. In, in, comes into the area of a, 
neglect of the basic uh, a basic right of the population for um, the uh, prevention of uh, injuries to their health. And um, it is, you can, you can only face this with the emotional attitude uh, saying we obviously are uh, dealing here with a criminal association that uh, 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 contravenes the rights of uh, the population of the EU and we have to do everything to, um, to stop these people. I have a question for you. Um, they didn't carry out any studies uh, for the so-called preliminary rapid approval, but no, for the standard approvals, they would have to submit these studies afterwards. Isn't that uh, something that has already arrived? No, uh, we are uh, we are demanding um, the publication. Um, of these, several uh, lawyers are uh, involved in this, and uh, it is uh, it is noticeable that that what should have been delivered, what should have been uh, uh, made available, is not uh, uh, is, is 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 not available, and also uh, it is absolutely clear that uh, there are no uh, studies have been done to cancerogenity and uh, mutagenity. Um, that is, th th and they, they, they're not doing that. They're not doing that in the full knowledge that uh, the studies would, um, would, uh, would present a very disastrous um, picture. And uh, that is uh, something for there are new sub substances, and uh, they were uh, explicitly uh, uh, called that by the European uh, Commission. And uh, for these new nucleic-based uh, nuclear acid mRNA uh, injections, the Committee for Novel Therapies uh, should have been involved. It wasn't. It was not involved because then um, uh, studies would have had to be done and um, they stated explicitly that uh, according to uh, Human Medicines as, uh, Committee, it is not necessary, it would not be necessary for such substances to uh, demonstrate to test for gene genetic toxicity, cancerogenicity, and uh, mutagenicity, and that is highly criminal in view of the, those those substances, which 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 which, which people are forced to. Uh, so, uh, where, where, where hundreds of millions of people are forced to suffer their application, and now uh, uh, it has expanded to the very little ones, and uh, and many unborn uh, children 
the systematic vaccination of uh, pregnant women uh, by, uh, through these substances uh, is, is, is means that also unborn children are exposed to this. So the genetic imprinting uh, using these substances has uh, has for many has already started for uh, the very little ones uh, uh, for has been for, for many years ago and I cannot uh, express my horror uh, at this gynecologist in an incredible way with uh, with uh, with with only very few uh, exceptions have uh, uh, have practically treated uh, the pregnant women uh, with this, even though uh, the uh, medium and long-term side effects are not uh, known and uh, uh, critical studies, essential studies have not been... Uh, I have another question for you. Thank you. I have another question for you. In Denmark, apparently it's against the law now to vaccinate children under the age of 12. Have you heard of that? Uh, and how does that work when it is actually a EU regulation? And you say it's been uh, approved by the EMA, but at the same time in, well, in Denmark it's against the law. Obviously... Um, the national pharma, uh, excuse me, the national health authorities um, uh, and the national uh, medical uh, medicines uh, authority is responsible, and they have the possibility to say no. In our country, uh, this uh, substance will not be applied to children. We. One, we do not want that uh, due to the uh, lack of safety data and or due to the uh, to, due to the lack of evidence of a positive uh, risk benefit uh, uh, assessment uh, let me say it again uh, children have no problem um, to uh, to deal with this type of infection. And as we know, there is medication, but they're risking enormous, uh, enormous uh, side effects uh, through the use of, through the treatment uh, with these uh, medicines. And uh, the sentence of this announcement of this uh, uh, publication uh, by EMA that the Human uh, Medicines uh, Committee has uh, the approval of the mRNA uh, vaccines for babies was recommended and it was uh, confirmed that uh, e even for the small children the same uh, uh, range of side effects occurred that then was found for the uh, older children and for adults in general. And we know that that with uh, officially we have had, uh, we've seen thousands of uh, cases and the EMA uh, that were included in the EMA uh, database. But uh, we know that we need to multiply this uh, number by at least 10 uh, through uh, the non-existing of uh, pharmacovigilance, and we also know of enormous uh, number of irreversible, uh, massive uh, damage uh, to health. And uh, uh, a sentence like that 
that that was used by the EMA, uh, by the EMA, that we now, within a very short time, we can, we can. We can. We we have given the approval for uh, approval uh, for the use on babies. Uh, this is uh, uh, an enormous scandal. As I said, uh, uh, let me repeat again. They are confirming themselves that that the risk profile, which is which is catastrophic which is disastrous, these substances should be taken off the market immediately, that this risk profile uh, is uh, identical to uh, the one to the doses uh, that, uh, is a, uh, that is uh, used for babies. It's incredible, hard to believe. And it is this, uh, these small children uh, are not given a chance to uh, establish a functioning immune system. They are, the, the, in, instead it is massively and, uh, in a, and uh, destroyed in the long term. And what we're seeing at the moment is that those who have been vaccinated who were spiked with uh, uh, substances containing mRNA uh, it wasn't destroyed yet because we know that not that that there are obviously uh, huge differences in the triggering of side effects uh, some batches uh, there weren't any uh, some batches uh, cause more side effects and uh, some uh, uh, vaccination uh, stations cost more than others, so it may have to do with the storage. Uh, if they are not sufficiently refrigerated, then the stuff, uh, mRNA as such, is in, has become inactive. And that was probably, for uh, many people, um, was 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 uh, was a lucky uh, chance that it didn't work. And, uh, and nevertheless, uh, the risk of nanolipids uh, continue to exist, uh, and experts uh, have explained that they are already a problem, as a completely separate problem. But as I said, the uh, we can only view with astonishment and 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 uh, uh, view the situation and to use all means disposable in order to stop this crime. We have in Italy, we, we've had uh, very hot weeks in Italy. We uh, appealed to the Constitutional Court who uh, decided uh, in 30th November on uh, several uh, uh, questions or on the uh, on uh, of of, of where, whether the vaccination is constitutional or not for the health uh, service workers, and what we've seen in the last three years, our worry is uh, very large that uh, the constitutional court uh, no longer works as as you know from the. Um, top judge of the who is responsible for uh, adhering to human rights and to the uh, constitutionality 
and obviously that can no longer uh, be expected. And uh, we as lawyers uh, who are active in this area, uh, we are uh, busy every day to bring to light f uh, more evidence uh, and to uh, and uh, to create awareness in order to 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 uh, to um, stop a decision being made that may be disastrous for the future in view of uh, the fact that war, that has been possible in the last three years nothing can be um, excluded but we are still fighting but the key uh, issue is that if the trust in the courts due to the the the, the uh, de facto uh, fa global failure of uh, judges, except if, uh, uh, for a few who keep up the spirit of uh, uh, rights against all uh, the attacks that uh, you, you could mention. Uh, the 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 key issue is in in view of this dreadful situation is. Uh, the bank bankruptcy of the uh, uh, state is that more and more uh, citizens in member states and throughout the EU in general are becoming aware uh, uh, of the facts because only then uh, we can uh, stop uh, the whole thing in the long run and uh, and and uh, and uh, initiate effective processes because uh, judges are a reflection of their societies and very sensitive, uh, let me put it that way, uh, to the feelings in the uh, uh, population. If they uh, see that uh, uh, the uh, the opinion uh, changes, uh, their views change as well, which shouldn't be, but uh, uh, human rights should, uh, independent of, uh, of what the population uh, thinks, which might be uh, become dangerous, uh, thinking of manipulative uh, uh, approaches and authoritarian regimens, uh, they can which can lead to very dangerous emotions in, in a population and uh, there the backbone of the legal system is uh, is asked for to to stop this but the human uh, component com component is unfortunately uh, at the moment in, in such a stage that we are lacking this backbone and we always have to we we're, we're dealing with people who when the when the atmosphere changes when the opinion changes will very quickly uh, want to join in with the majority of uh, the population and then suddenly make a different decision so it needs uh, the awareness of the general population that's uh, essential all right and i have a question that just came in um in Italy, apparently, the fifth doses for vaccination is about to begin. And what is it that you are trying so that you can get into this, uh, you know, and, and, and 
pinch into this propaganda bubble. We are seeing that um, the enthusiasm for the fifth dose is uh, much less pronounced than it was one year ago uh, in, 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 in relation to these injections. By now, many people have understood that it is not uh, a very good idea to uh, simply uh, shoot something up your body and we have a new uh, government now who which whose uh, voters uh, is uh, to a large extent uh, uh, is recruited is is uh, is, is very critical towards uh, the mRNA uh, uh, vaccination and COVID measures. And we will see the re re government will, we, we thought it could no longer happen because there is such a, quite, a, quite a power struggle uh, going on between Berlusconi and uh, Melodida, but uh, she has obviously uh, uh, succeeded in, in pushing through her, uh, her uh, chosen ministers. For us, the health ministry is uh, absolutely of, of uh, very high relevance. And, uh, and uh, what's, what's, what's critical is that uh, uh, the the new government uh, boss has promised that there will be no further uh, obligations or, 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 or oblig obligatory vaccinations uh, for reasons of uh, the pandemic. And we'll see whether this uh, promise uh, given before the election will uh, she will uh, deliver on that. And um, it may well be possible that the obligation for the duty for over 50-year-olds to, 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 to have this injection done to them uh, was valid until the 30th of June of this year. And for them, uh, the procedure for um, making them pay fines has been uh, has been uh, debated uh, and it may well be that this will be stopped altogether so we'll see how, what the new measures of the new government will be like we assume that uh, they will uh, take the following approach if it if if the if if uh, the measures are stopped temporarily they will um take an approach which um which will make it uh, which would make it difficult for us to claim compensation for past events but as i said uh, the evidence is uh, clear and we will uh, obviously fight for fight for uh, thousands of uh, people thousands of people and workers in the health service have been suspended have been banned from working 
and uh, and are not allowed to work in their uh, chosen profession. They have to go abroad, and that that these people uh, should be uh, paid uh, their wages and should be able to claim compensation for what they have uh, suffered, uh, the stress, etc. And the same applies also uh, to those people who were forced to uh, have these injections or who, I mean, a, a claim uh, for compensation uh, should be open to all citizens who uh, was not properly informed, who uh, believed the official narrative to 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 use this substance uh, and uh, that it would protect against the virus and to prevent the uh, spreadability of the virus, which is something that um, the special uh, committee of the parliament uh, called as non as a non existing proof. And that will uh, has uh, uh, caused some uproar in Italy, <clears throat> and has uh, even managed uh, to to reach some main, mainstream mainstream media, particularly TV stations, which are normally uh, important in Italy. And this is what uh, will also filter down to the judges. I mean, they are also were also uh, exposed to the official lie and <clears throat> wanted to believe and wanted to believe it even though uh, we as lawyers uh, 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 provided the reassessment of the EMA evaluation and uh, said, look, they're explaining that they have no evidence of the prevention of uh, the virus being transmitted uh, through people, uh, of uh, treated people. And those um, lawyers that are uh, obligated to provide material and, and now they are confronted by uh, information that's going around the world. Another 90% uh, are all spiked. And this is something that may create an inner resistance amongst these people, particularly when uh, they've had their children uh, uh, spiked as well in the incorrect belief that they would protect themselves or their parents. I have another question for you. This party that you just mentioned that did so well during the election, what is the exact name and what is their percentage? Fratelli Italia. And don't ask me about the percentages because uh, for me uh, this is already yesterday's news. It was the strongest party uh, I'm sure uh, more than 20%, and they are, uh, they've uh, formed a coalition, uh, uh, center-right coalition with uh, Forza Italia of Berlusconi and the Liga. And these three uh, parties uh, are now forming the government. So we have uh, a center-right government that 
um, the so-called Democrats, as I said, you can unfortunately not even say Norman is is omen is uh, uh, completely wrong here. It's incredible. Uh, the Greens are no longer what they were at the beginning, and the Democrats uh, uh, and and uh, the Democrats as uh, as well. They have. They have spread scare stories and said, now the fascists are coming. From what we've seen in the last three years, it can't get worse. And I know that uh, very many in uh, leaders of the party uh, of the party Italia were against the measures. and. Uh, at the vote at the EU uh, Parliament, they voted against the uh, vaccination pass. And that's why I, uh, with regard to this aspect, and that is for me a fundamental aspect uh, in the whole uh, story, it's the, an aspect that touches upon human rights. Uh, it is, uh, uh, has, I have much more trust uh, than uh, Partico Democratic than those from Partico Democratico, who um, still uh, believe that uh, the these substances mean freedom. That without these substances, you can no longer return. Would would have no longer been able to return to freedom, and that I, I would say. I would say probably more than 80% of the young people uh, were they were able to win over because um, uh, through this narrative, uh, which is also um, uh, is very similar to the Green Party, um, they could. Um, uh, influence uh, young people in a very manu manipulative way that this would be the only way, and uh, and uh, and uh, the capacity for critical thinking of young people, uh, particularly in Italy, was done away with, and we are watching this with a great concern because uh, what we're seeing here is that the generation uh, that was uh, able to uh, to cast a vote in this election, you know, because we're 18, um, we see that the population that were where increase where critical voices are seen uh, uh, starts again uh, only amongst the 40 and 50 year olds but uh, all those that are younger um, have already been uh, suffering from uh, wrong education and manipulation and that is extremely worrying well, it's a good sign that uh, at least uh, there is uh, the outcome which brought forth a group which
took this into their platform and uh, apparently there was a need for it in the population. If not, that party wouldn't have been so successful. I must say that um, that um, the small parties, uh, the, the newly formed small parties, uh, were uh, rightly uh, r r r rightly uh, drove them on because three uh, serious parties, three small serious parties, uh, uh, put uh, themselves up for election, and they asked for the discontinuation and for the investigation of of the situation and that that was uh, what a main uh that was the main part of their uh, election program and the new uh, uh governing parties obviously uh, knew that many millions of 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 uh of italians uh, are affected and now we will see whether this aspect, this key aspect, uh, will given uh, the attention that it deserves, or whether they are only tried to to uh, take uh, the oxygen, the, the 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 clients away from these small uh, new parties. And we very much hope that this will be implemented now. Uh, they were uh, they were they were uh, voted by millions of people who wanted uh, to get rid of it. Hi, Renata. Um, I have a question as to the differences. Is there other regional differences, north and south? Do you know anything about that? Was there? There is uh, a north-south divide. Absolutely, it's uh, very noticeable. Uh, the biggest, what, what the biggest uh, uh, aspect is that the Cinque Spela party, that uh, the aggressive comic Lepagrillo uh, uh, set it up, that this uh, was uh, able to hold on in the south and uh, returned uh, much better results than uh, was expected because the basic the basic income was uh, uh, part of their um, uh, program and that is obviously attractive especially in the south and in the north we have they lost uh, a lot of uh, support uh, they uh, they were decimated in parliament but they were nevertheless uh, able to uh, hold on because of the support in the south and then a very noticeable north south difference or perhaps even a, um, it has, may have to do with the difference of uh, mentalities or cultures, but we in Southern Tyrol and I uh, stood for one of those small parties, um, and in my uh, district um, we achieved uh, seven percent, uh, and we are 
in, in certain uh, uh, villages, we became the second uh, uh, strongest, uh, biggest party, uh, uh, attaining uh, up to 20 and even 25%. Uh, These are German-speaking uh, villages. Southern uh, Tyrol is uh, mainly uh, German-speaking in uh, rural areas. Uh, where we fared worst was the town of Bolzano, uh, which, uh, because of its Italian-speaking uh, population, uh, and that is due to the fact that uh, that it wasn't visible. We were not. Uh, we were ignored uh, by the media. Were were less. Uh, and and. Amongst the Italian-speaking uh, uh, voters, those who wanted to be on the safe side, because we have the three percent clause, uh, they uh, voted for Fratelli Italia because they uh, had a point in their uh, manifesto that there would be no further uh, duty to uh, no no oblig obligatory uh, vaccinations any longer. Uh, they're not talking about other vaccinations. We have a lot of obligatory uh, pediatric uh, vaccinations. We are one of those European countries where um, where uh, a, 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 a huge number uh, of uh, of uh, childhood vaccinations are obligatory, and the more and more uh, uh, parents, as a result, uh, do not vaccinate at all. That's a reaction. And uh, they are. It is often uh, uh, described in such a way as they were very strange and uh, uh, anti-scientific science uh, people. But uh, the fact is that uh, due to the excess and continuous uh, introduction of new uh, vaccinations where uh, the the proof is not is not uh, delivered that it is necessary and that uh, the risk benefit uh, ratio is right but as a result of that the natural reaction particularly those that are well informed and this is this is uh, academics entrepreneurs business people uh, the so called no buts as they are called uh, in Italy, in a very uh, uh, discrediting way by the mainstream, as stupid um, and um, below, uh, you know, low intelligence part of the population are either they're called they they are called both uh, stupid as well as at the same time as the the. You know, uh, open to the uh, to the right of the political spectrum. The reality is that, due to the absurd development that has occurred in Italy, uh, starting in 2014, uh, when under the then government, uh, particular Democratico, uh, together with the then Obama government in the U.S., uh, made an agreement. Uh, whereby Italy is the biggest uh, vaccination laboratory in Europe and um, uh, further 
uh, obligatory vaccinations were introduced for uh, children. And many uh, parents, and after extensive information uh, that they obtained, and let me uh, repeat that again, uh, including highly educated uh, people who uh, you cannot excuse of being uh, stupid or uneducated, uh, and particularly uh, actionism or s support of uh, uh, right-wing theories. Okay, but what possibilities do parents have when it comes to school or life in general in Italy uh, if they act like this and want to protect well, their children? Uh, it is up until today uh, there was uh, there was uh, uh, it, it was possible you pay a fine uh, for 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 normal vaccinations. Uh, the case was that after you had paid a fine, uh, the children were were allowed to attend a school or preschool now. So it seems that money uh, can be very infectious. So apparently with that, yes, you yes, can deal with right. everything. But now, <laughs> but now, uh, due to the uh, to the different level, uh, the different uh, pragmatic, uh, dramatic situation where we've seen that it was possible to to uh, eject people from their uh, professions and ban them from access to public uh, transport and restaurants. The worry is very very big that uh, this could change, and as a result of that, many now have. Uh, uh, voted for this party because many expect that under the new government, unless uh, they will be uh, they will be pressurized by uh, the European Union, that this will no longer be possible so easily. We'll see. Well, in Germany, um, school, of course, is something that uh, is up to the individual lender, the states. How is it in Italy? Could it be that the regional boss of a province says, no, I won't go th well, through with that? Uh, generally, the regions in Italy, uh, except for the autonomous uh, provinces like Bolzano, uh, the main uh, the main uh, uh, responsibilities are regional, local. And however, they have no primary competence. If the state decides, then it is a matter for the state. We in Southern Tyrol find that if the regional government um, wanted, uh, we would make full use of our autonomy. Uh, but when it is about uh, authoritarian measures, uh, that has never been done. Uh, so uh, they forget uh, the autonomy that they actually have. Well, in Germany, you hear of parents who actually leave the country because they simply do not want their kids to be subjected to this because they are afraid that, uh, and of course they're right, uh, that uh, the health of their child may be um, jeopardized and they go and move away. And uh, if that were possible within the same country there, you just go to another part of Germany where you wouldn't have to be uh, vaccinated, it would be nice. And that would be very attractive. 
um, you know, as those regions, uh, you know, and then all the uh, reasonable people would just move there. Yes, uh, the, uh, what a charming idea. Well, in Germany, that's quite possible, actually, uh, because uh, this is done at the level of the uh, local mayor, because they can just say, no, we don't want that. And we have to see to what uh, uh, level their levels of, of, of competencies may, may, may reach. Uh, it would be interesting to see that, uh, to what extent um, uh, health care could be... Uh, enforce upon you. So this may be an incentive to move somewhere else then. There are organizations where uh, mayors meet and uh, there is the conference of municipalities. So there are structures uh, that talk to each other and it would be exciting to uh, introduce discussions into these circles where mayors uh, uh, meet or regional um, heads of, of of government meet, so that uh, if we can't get it into the big discussion where which is dominated by the media, but uh, into those uh, arenas where uh, local uh, regional uh, authorities discuss practical problems, that would be great because it's very difficult to uh, counteract this nonsense with real arguments. Yes, yes with of course. arguments they don't you they don't work with arguments um at the moment where uh, they need to argue in an open uh, discussion at that point they have no chance and that's why they avoid it i mean that's reason that's reason uh why the obvious reason that's uh, why they avoid it. Now, with regard to the possibility of uh, of local authorities in in our country against these experimental, genetically uh, motivated substances uh, to 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 block them, they uh, they they would have had to do this because uh, any authority that is involved in executing a crime or any uh, citizen and this principle uh, doesn't just uh, exist in italy but in every any civilized country uh, becomes guilty as well by joining in executing a crime and uh, at the time when these local uh, authorities of public health authorities, for example, they are called uh, public health uh, units that uh, work on a regional or local level. Uh, they were uh, they were uh, provided with all the paperwork and the documentation. So we have so much uh, proof. Uh, that uh, through which we can demonstrate that these responsible knew from the beginning uh, that these are substances that 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 do not that do not prevent uh, the spread uh, by uh, through uh, people who were vaccinated and who had an enormous risk profile where a lot was not clarified. Uh, before, and the, all these people um, were members. Uh, they, 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 they all 
are complicit in crime and uh, they're responsible for deaths and for other um, and for other uh, serious side effects that were not uh, known at the time. So um, you need to differentiate between classic uh, vaccination matters and this uh, this matter here. This is this is something which which which, which is uh, uh, on a completely different uh, level, uh, legally speaking. Okay, we have another question that reached us uh, through the tool. Uh, the tool, in fact, had a bit of a problem right with the second number already because either it was because so many people had tried to uh, call in and ask questions or, you know, somebody tried to attack our system and brought it down. I don't know. We don't know that yet. But at any rate, the one question that did reach us, but by the way, we are going to look into that and make sure that next time we have a very stable and proper tool for us. But I have re uh, one question here. So this uh, standard approval, is that already uh, a done thing in Europe or is it just a, a, a temporary approval? For Cominati and uh, Pfizer-BioNTech, we have effectively a so-called standard approval. This is not uh, preliminary or limited approval, and that is absolutely scandalous as well in view of the circumstance of uh, what uh, key studies were not uh, perf perf conducted, and in view of the uh, disastrous uh, risk-benefit uh, analysis, uh, which is negative, <laughs> which is the truth. And uh, they uh, ignore all that and uh, have, uh, uh, have uh, uh, moved it into a standard approval. And that too, we have to uh, take action against because there is no, uh, there are no preconditions for this. And as I said at the beginning, we see one measure after another. Uh, taken by this criminal gang, I have no other word to describe that, uh, them, uh, who uh, ignore fundamental principle, uh, principles of European medicines law and the effective data, even the official uh, data, because we mustn't forget, uh, I must re-emphasize that we have no active pharmacovigilance, only a passive one, and even that passive pharmacovigilance combined with the statistics uh, from um, over uh, fatalities that is observed in all countries where, uh, where this uh, campaign was uh, started. Um, I uh, it is incredible that such um, that such uh, uh, decisions are made by the European um, uh, and as in, in view of who sits on EMA and who finances them, uh, one should be surprised. It is uh, really terrible to see that the how shall I see that the level of uh, criminal energy 
that you do uh, uh, interest uh, uh, you can have uh, conflicts of interest in life in in many areas but when it comes to the life and the health of the entire european uh, uh, population that is uh, that is put at risk here it needs a lot of energy and uh, and uh, in italian you would say bail of the stomach so you always have to be you have to make sure that you can still look at yourself in the mirror in the morning that's the situation and we have we are dealing with criminal activity it has nothing to do with uh, with uh, legality and uh, transparency and may i uh, interject and ask another question do you know when they have the next uh, budget debate uh, at the european parliament level uh, I do not know that. I'm not informed about. Well, it was it was an incredible thing uh, because that it was once it was blocked. The imam budget was blocked by Parliament because they did not want to share uh, the clinical data from the studies, uh, and that initiative was there by the parliamentarians. However, um, you know, the Parliament still has the right to either approve or not approve the budget. Um, so without a budget, they can't work, even though most of the money they have, of course, gets directly from the pharmaceutical industry. But it would be a way for the members of Parliament to put some pressure yes. on them. Of course, uh, there was a majority. And when we see who is uh, active in uh, calling for transparency and uh, and uh, clarification, this is an abject performance of the uh, European uh, Parliament because the majority of so-called uh, uh, representatives of uh, the European population seem to be completely in, uh, disinterested in this. And if you look at the meetings of the Special Commission, etc., that all takes part in front of empty seats, uh, uh, you know, an absence of any audience, and that is something which, mm, which, which uh, uh, sheds a light on these parliamentarians, para MEPs that are not active. Exactly, For that's example, why I asked the question. Uh, in Italy. I was uh, in in January in, of this year, so almost a year ago. I I was uh, uh, I was asked to uh, uh, to make a legal assessment of the COVID nineteen vaccinations. I did that and. Uh, based only on official documents uh, uh, so that uh, it didn't give uh, was thought as being subjective. So uh, documents that were uh, sufficient to prove that uh, that the effect that was pronounced by uh, Italian uh, law was uh, uh, not there. And that was published uh, on the website of the Senate, uh, and it still uh, is still available on the on the web uh, page of the Senate of the Italian uh, Republic. And my conclusion was that 
this constitutes a crime against humanity and that every um, member of the Senate, uh, every, every senator, the ch second chamber of the Italian parliament, uh, who is in favor of the extension of the expansion of the COVID-19 uh, duty to vaccinate is a, a co-conspirator uh, co in this uh, crime. And this is a key uh, document in order to make these people uh, liable uh, retrospectively. We had, we had, for example, uh, I think in Germany it was uh, probably the same. We had we we uh, called Draghi, who who said when they spoke to the Italian population, they declared who those who uh, are not vaccinated risks dying, and is responsible that for other people dying. So the top institutional representatives of the Italian uh, Republic. Uh, uh, used incorrect information to um, to 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 denigrate uh, citizens who uh, were against the obligation. And now, now that the special uh, committee of the EU Parliament. Uh, you know, uh, did uh, exactly the same as that that we knew from the beginning. And in order to, they reacted in such a way that they say, well, this is uh, new information. And then we, my expertise of the time, imagine, uh, on the website of of the of the Italian uh, Republic. It was published on the Italian website uh, and and uh, we said you knew uh, at the latest uh, uh, on January of this year. And in January, February, March until May we many many citizens were excluded from the basic right. Um, because they weren't willing to uh, be vaccinated. And we had an enormous pressure uh, for the treatment uh, of the, of, with these experimental uh, treatments, uh, you know, for children, for, 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 for young people. They were excluded. They weren't allowed to go on outings. They weren't allowed to uh, do physical exercise, sports. It was a huge discrimination. And that's why there was a vaccination rate in Italy that, that covers 35% of children with these injections. And that is all happened um, after uh, all the facts were published on the website of the Senate uh, with the uh, with the, with the uh, uh, statement that there was, it's, it's a crime against humanity. They published it on the website of the uh, uh, Senate. There is a crime against humanity happening. Those are the documents. Well, we 
kept repeating that. Uh, we've seen that in history. Those who do that, who run a totalitarian regime, they, they do that often uh, because they are very sure that they will not be held uh, responsible. Pinochet, uh, you know, received his pension payments up until the very end of his life, even though he had committed many, many crimes against humanity. And you see that uh, many of um, the perpetrators are quite sure they will avoid punishment. And the question is, how do we deal with that? How can we make sure uh, that there are structures um, and that people will simply not resign but uh, act against it? Because once you have that kind of mood, um, meaning that you have given up on the rule of law, uh, if you accept that, that uh, people are committing crimes and uh, laughing all the way home and because they know they will never be punished for that. Uh, that means that the rule of law has been suspended. There is no such thing as rule of law. Then there is only um, the survival of the fittest. And whatever is important to us for which uh, we have fought and what we're proud of is gone. Wolfgang, these are very important thoughts that you're sharing with me, and we have to make sure that this does not occur. And the others shouldn't feel so safe that uh, uh, they will never be brought to responsibility. Unfortunately, we're a little bit under time pressure. We, uh, it's a fascinating talking to you, Renata, and there's so much information, and you are so knowledgeable about it. However, um, we must now turn to our other guests who also have very interesting bits of information for us, so we don't want to run out of time. Let's talk again in the near future, and then we'll get an update about the situation in Italy. Thank you very much for being able to talk to us, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you very, very much, please. Renata. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, we talked to Dr. Dr. Renate Holzeisen. She is a lawyer and an economist from Italy, and she was talking to us about the situation of uh, the approval of Cominati and spikebacks COVID-19 for children uh, as of the age of six months. And now we have another guest, Alex Thompson. Uh, we've talked to him a number of times in the past on... Um, here I am, yes. Thank you very much, Viviana, for having me on. Hello, Hello lovely, lovely that you're here with us. You always have such a nice picture in the background. Makes one want to, <laughs> to uh, I don't know, have a little bit of uh, time off somewhere where it's pleasant. Um, yeah, maybe could you introduce yourself a little bit um, for the people who don't know yet what you're doing? I am uh, one of the presenters on UK Column News, which is ukcolumn.org. And I've been effectively the correspondent on Europe and on geopolitics and on intelligence matters for eight years now. And my background is that I was uh, a desk officer, so uh, an entry level intelligence officer at GCHQ. Britain's equivalent of the NSA or the Bundesnachrichtendienst mm -hmm. from 2001 to 2009, specializing in the former Soviet Union. And as time went on, I developed some non-geographical specialisms as well, such as uh, weapons of mass destruction 
although not from the technical side, but from the side of proliferation and politics around these weapons, mm-hmm. um, and also uh, a specialism in counter-terrorism, uh, again, from a, uh, an, a technical and electronic side rather than uh, a human intelligence side, because GCHQ uh, doesn't infiltrate people on the ground. And then I came to the Netherlands, and that is the time uh, just after 2009 when I emigrated is the time when I started working with UK Column. Uh, So we do three news broadcasts a week and I am also now the commissioning editor, that is the editor of all articles and podcasts on ukcolumn.org. So for example in that capacity I recently translated and published Florian Warwick's piece in Nachdenkseiten.de which uh, I'm sure we will be getting to in a moment but I also edit the material of, of other people. Mm-hmm. Super. Um, yeah, it would be great. So uh, you came to us with an assessment of the situation between Ukra- Ukraine and the NATO uh, versus um, Russia. So what's going on there? Well, the the three questions uh, I've been given by Corvin are very uh, compelling ones. Uh, indeed, the first one is the war situation, for which I have prepared only just a couple of very general slides, and I can talk more generally before I show slides. In mm-hmm. fact, they're not slides, but they are browser tabs, because people can find this information for themselves as well. And then the, the we'll, in a moment, we'll get to the question of the Nord Stream attack, and finally, the information war around the Ukraine war. So I have to sound caveats first. The first of them is that I am not a military analyst. I don't have military experience. Uh, And in fact, on that very point, I can start by saying something uh, which is contemporary to the situation right now, which is that it is strange that the head of my former intelligence agency, the director of GCHQ, has expressed such public opinions about the fate of the war. I'm talking about Sir Jeremy Fleming, He even has a a name that sounds like James Bond characters. So Jeremy Fleming is the current director of GCHQ, which I repeat is the Signals Intelligence Agency. So it is equivalent to only the electronic half of the BND. And yet he addressed the leading strategic military think tank in Whitehall last week, uh, the Royal United Services Institute. And he gave a single intelligence source assessment on the basis of which he was confident that Russia had, quote, run out of ammunition or was close to doing so, and that the Ukrainians would certainly win. He didn't say it quite that bluntly, but that was, that was his uh, pronouncement on the matter. Now, this is very strange because, as I mentioned on UK Column News last week when discussing this directly, even in my day, in the decade of the 2000s, It was not permitted and not expected of the individual intelligence agencies, GCHQ, MI5, MI6, the Defence Intelligence Service at the the Ministry of Defence. These are the four main ones in Britain, and it's equally true of the American equivalent agencies. They were not expected to give single source assessments of something so complicated as the progress of a war. It's for that very reason that we have national Uh, assessment centres. There was only one level in my time, that is the Cabinet Office. You will recall from my grand jury testimony that the Cabinet Office is Britain's central government department, which literally, literally as well as figuratively sits between the Foreign Office and Number 10 Downing Street and filters everything that goes to and fro, forth, the to and fro. So even in that time, the Cabinet Office's intelligence staff are supposed to issue these pronouncements and they issue the intelligence papers every week. But since my departure 
from Britain and from the intelligence service, there is yet another level which has been neglected, which is the National Security Council, an, a body which many other countries had for a longer time, but Britain didn't have until about a decade ago. But yet, they are calling on the directors of individual intelligence agencies who only have a partial picture, whether it's photographs from the air or communications or human reports, they're calling upon these guys to make an overall assessment. Now, the military uh, analysis we do on UK column is largely due uh, to is, is largely uh, produced by Brian Gerrish, who, as I think you know, and most of the viewers know, is a retired lieutenant commander of the Royal Navy. So his expertise is, of course, more marine than terrestrial warfare. Uh, but he has been using the best primary sources he can, obscure YouTube commentators, you always find them in every war, who obsessively follow the progress of the front lines back and forth. And many of these are, in the true sense of the word, disinterested, impartial people. For example, a man in, in Singapore called Defence Politics Asia is one of the very best. And what Brian has been saying, based on what he's following from them, and sometimes he sends me material from in Ukrainian or Russian to check as well, voice material, is that the uh, the Ukrainians have indeed made rapid progress through the autumn in parts of the east and south of the country. But to generalize the situation, I would say that they cannot rely on the support of the local population. The further east and south you go, the less they can rely on them. In fact, Donetsk and Lugansk are a special case because in those two oblasts, the population doesn't even say of themselves that they are Ukrainians whose mother language, native language is Russian. Now, in Donetsk and Lugansk, they have always said, look at our surnames, look at our way of life. We are Russians who happen to be to live in the state of the Ukraine. That's different from the situation in the two other oblasts which have now held referenda, uh, Zaporozhye and Kherson. Uh, these two consist of people of very mixed nationality who've come from all over the former Soviet Union, whose common language is Russian uh, and who have a, a more who, who could until until this stage of the war, they could perhaps have said, well, we will go with Kiev after a decent peace deal is signed. But that is the part that's being brought into doubt now. The population in many parts of this uh, of that part of the, the, the war zone, uh, particularly at the moment, there's heavy fighting going around around the city of Bakhmut where BBC had to uh, admit this week uh, that the Russians, uh, sorry, that the Ukrainians still hadn't taken the city back. Uh, that's what seems to happen, is that there's a lot of talk among these people and the northern part of the war zone as well, uh, Kharkov, the second city of Ukraine, this is equally true there. People whose heritage is mixed, whose mother language is Russian, but who could have said before the war, will choose Kiev or Moscow, even for, shall we say, basic economic considerations or family considerations. A lot of the people are hardening in their position now. Some are hardening towards Ukraine, absolutely. And it's acknowledged by both sides. I think that the West has better propaganda and therefore the Ukrainian um, uh, media have a, a great power in propaganda helped by the Anglo-Saxon countries in particular. But yet there is, seems to be an increasing amount of uh, I don't want to use the word in a, in a negative sense, but collaboration or tolerance of the Russian occupation by a surprising, to the, to the Ukrainians, to a, to a surprising number of pe people in these areas. Maybe at this stage I shall start sharing my screen and show you the browser tabs that I have lined up. In fact, the first couple are relevant to what Dr. Holtzeisen was just telling us. If you can see on screen at the moment, there is an exclusive report just up in the uh, Scottish newspaper, The Herald, 
and they are reporting in an exclusive directly from the Scottish Public Health Agency, Public Health Scotland, that vaccines have been ruled out by the Public Health Authority in Scotland as a cause of the surge in uh, mortality, the excess mortality among newborn children, neonatal deaths. So I would just mention this before we get on to the Ukraine because it's directly relevant to what Renata was saying. Uh, look at this write-up. Experts stressed that there was no, quote, plausible, unquote, link between high infant mortality and the ingest, uh, COVID injections. Um, Public Health Scotland says it was not possible to identify a scenario that would have resulted in a change to public health policy or practice. And then they say that, just like Renata was just saying, the population uh, are already well informed, so there is no point. And they go on, they don't use the word not in the public interest, but they are, to paraphrase what Public Health Scotland are saying, they are saying it's not in the public interest to look into this further. They said that if they identified whether the mothers had been vaccinated or not, even in a general aggregated way, this would harm the mothers or the children and those close to them. And they say that such analysis will not be done because it would be uninformative for public health decision making and it could be used to harm vaccine confidence at this critical time. So that's really quite a shocker, but I'll, say, I'll mention that in passing. And even more quickly in passing, I'll mention because uh, Dr. Vodak asked about the European Union's budget and the vote about it in the European Union, in the European Parliament. This is a very complicated issue. Here, for example, is a, a paper from 2018 by a Hungarian, Arkos Kengel, who talks about the neglected fact that the budget at the European Union runs from five to seven to 10 years. It's called the multi-annual financial framework, the MFF. It was last voted on for the years 2021 to 2027. And he was foreseeing that because the European Parliament and the European Commission have five-year mandates, that uh, we're now in the period 2019 to 2024 and the European Union's seven-year budget, six-year budget 2021 to 27 is running. Therefore, the major budget, the really big item to vote on, is not for several years yet. Uh, they haven't even, as far as I understand, decided how many years this will run. But that's about as much as I can say about the situation on the ground, other than perhaps the general observation, and sorry that this, that this browser is still on screen, it's not relevant to what I'm saying for a few seconds, but uh, I am hearing a lot more from uh, military and political analysts, particularly in Russia, uh, that there is a decision, a decision uh, really to go very hard at Ukraine this winter if it continue, continues its present refusal to negotiate at all, and that this could end with possibly even the occupation of Kiev over the winter. I'm stressed I don't have strong indications personally of that, but this is at least a talk among analysts whom I take seriously. Uh, perhaps I'll go straight through to the second and third items and then lead it to questions, if that's all right with you. Now, the second item that Corbyn asked me to prepare was what happened with Nord Stream. Uh, I hope you're, you're seeing on screen now the Norddeutsches Rundfunk piece. Are you seeing that? Yes. Good. This will be particularly interesting, perhaps, to Wolfgang, because it's his own native uh, area, Schleswig-Holstein, that's being reported. <laughs> now, what's going on here... Uh, for those who don't read German, although they're, they're listening to interpreting anyway, this is a report from uh, the 3rd of August this year, so not very long before the Nord Stream 
uh, a pipeline was blown up, and it's their Schleswig-Holstein Magazine reporting what was going on in the Baltic Sea. So it says that the US Navy shows its flag in the Eastern Baltic, uh, and they are talking about the island of Bornholm, which people now know is Danish, uh, and very near where the explosion happened on the seabed. But look at this. This is just a data point for us to bear in mind. Insgesamt 4,000 US-Soldaten, Hubschrauberpiloten, Marineinfanteristen, Ärzte, Strategen sind auf dem Weg nach Osten. Am Mittwochmorgen gegen 6 Uhr hat der Verband die dänische Insel Bornholm bereits passiert. Dann schalten die Amerikaner ihre automatischen Schiffsidentifikationssysteme, AIS, aus und sind ohne weiteres nicht mehr zu orten. This has been admitted uh, by the taxpayer-funded mainstream media yes. in the relevant part of Germany yes, great. just a few oh. weeks before oh. the attack. And we, we, on UK Column, if people search for this word, the USS Kearsarge, I don't know whether the highlighting of words is being shown on the screen. Can you see the highlighting? Yes. Words? Good. The USS Kearsarge is a particularly specialist vessel, which our um, naval expert Brian Gerrish talked about, which scuttled away quickly from the scene. Now, people will know about this, and they will also know about the quickly deleted tweet by uh, the Polish foreign policy supremo, uh, Radek Sikorski, who said, thank you, America, and then deleted that tweet. This may have blinded some people to the complexity of the situation, because it's more likely, in my opinion, that perhaps the Americans using such vessels may have provided equipment and provide and dropped off packages in the area, but I don't think they will have acted alone. Uh, I don't think that even if they get thanked by uh, Sikorsky, this, this doesn't necessarily mean that the Americans uh, were acting alone in this attack. Look here, for example, these are some of the best analysts you will find, uh, the two Alexanders who together formed the channel the Duran, and they are between them fluent in German, Russian, Greek, a number of languages, and read the sources very carefully. And I have frozen it at this moment. This is a 17th of October video, uh, and the title is, and I'm sure this has come to you in German media, Germany says it knows who sabotaged Nord Stream, but it will not stay. So I've frozen it at the moment at 2 minutes 30 when Alexander Mercuris says that there have been some extraordinary comments from the German government and the German minister was asked directly, do you know who was responsible for Nord Stream? And the minister, not named here, I'm sorry, I don't have the name for you, said, yes, Germany does know who carried out this attack, but it is not going to disclose that because doing so would be contrary to national security. Now, may I put it to the audience that the chance, therefore, that Germany believes it was Russia that did it is zero if it's not saying who they were. This is really quite something. And I'm, I'm among the possible culprits, I would say a serious possibility would be uh, a British-Polish uh, operation assisted by the Americans. Uh, and for this, you should bear in mind uh, that uh, there was uh, the leader of a um, militia group called Svoboda, also known as C-14, uh, in Kiev, one of the extreme neo-Nazi groups and genuinely neo-Nazi, who said just in the month that the war began, uh, when speaking to a think tank in Kiev, he said, quote, um, uh, we are building a new 
multi-ethnic state in the whole zone between Germany and Russia. And when we beat the Russians, and this is what's important to Germans to understand, he said, we will also take parts of Eastern Germany away. We will cause them to secede, he's thinking of Saxony in the first instance, and join our new Eastern European megastate. This idea was already proposed by the Poles in the interwar period and was called intermarium, a Latin term meaning land between the seas. And it's supposed to extend from the Baltic to the Adriatic and to the Black Sea in a huge triangle of states between Germany and Russia. Uh, I just put it to you that there is no element of, shall we say, the German deep state or German economic interests which would be interested in doing this to Germany, blowing up the Nord Stream. There are, however, elements in Poland, which just like 100 years ago, when they were very nasty to the German minorities in uh, Danzig and other areas in Silesia, there are elements in Poland which would be interested in making life miserable, first for Russia, but in the second place for Germany. So you shouldn't rule that out. We go on to the Kerch Bridge in Crimea. Uh, you know, with these, with these, um, these identification system that the um, the American ships, um, you know, turned off, switched off, switched off. Do we know at what point they have been switched on? Is anyone follow following these kind of technical informations? Are they available? The only detail I'm aware of is that we see the ships leaving through the Skagerrak and the Kattegat again as they leave the the. Um, the Baltic Sea, and as we showed on UK Column News, you can see footage of these um, uh, ships sailing back through the English Channel and heading back to America at a rate of knots, as we say, as soon as they, as, as quickly as they can. But certainly while they were around Bornholm, they were switched off. They were switching off their identification, which, okay, there are, it's true, there are some kinds of uh, uh, defense exercises where you do that, uh, but it, it, it's, it raises some suspicions. Particularly is, done for a while. Is there any um, information about participation of submarines? We haven't seen anything definitive yet, but that would be some of the hardest material to come across. And I'm confident in saying there probably isn't, because if there had been, Brian Gerrish, who was an old anti-submarine warfare officer, would have jumped upon it and would have spoken about it. Um, submarines, wherever they exist, a bit like satellites, are multitask platforms. So wherever they have a task like oceanographic research in the case of submarines or civilian communications in the case of satellites, they always have an unacknowledged secondary purpose for military aims, including shooting down other satellites or cutting cables on the seabed or tapping into cables to get communications. So this stuff is extremely closely held. People even in the Navy of their own country will not necessarily know what the submarine service is doing. It's very, very closely held. Uh, but I'll go back to sharing a screen, perhaps, to show you something about the Kerch uh, bridge attack. This newspaper, the Eurasian Times, is run by Indians in Canada, in my understanding, the Eurasian Times. And here we have an October the 13th report, so very recent, with a new report claiming that the Americans supplied uh, UUVs, that is drones, could be behind the explosion. It might not be a truck bomb. Now, this and also the next piece I'll show you here uh, by Molfar, M-O-L-F-A-R dot global. These are not pro-Russian sources. Uh, in fact, this particular piece in Molfar, which forms the basis of 
this Eurasian Times report is very critical of Russia. Uh, in a nutshell, Mofar is claiming that the Russians are lying to us directly when they say that a truck bomb caused it, and they suspect this is because the Russians do not want to admit that some very uh, exotic weaponry may have been used. Now, if you look at the stills which have been taken uh, from the famous footage, you can see uh, what they're uh, arguing about. Here is an uncrewed boat, so it's the submarine equivalent of an aerial drone which washed ashore reportedly in Crimea. We can see a little further down, we get into structural engineering here. We do have a structural engineer in UK Columns core team, who is David Scott. But you can see here that there was a lot of interest in uh, where the weakest point in the bridge's structure is to attack. Um, we go through to the MOLFAR uh, report, which is a, a, a geostrategic consultancy, which is very sceptical about the idea of a truck bomb. And look here, we've got some good stills, which, uh, and this is not the only report which has said this, they're very suspicious about the uh, uh, undamaged nature of the part of the bridge which blew up. You know, this, is, this shouldn't happen normally if a truck bomb was the cause. You would see great destruction of the road surface for many meters, but we don't see that here. The railway part of the bridge was almost undamaged and the supports were unbroken. The second lane of the road was unbroken. We hear that this is an absurd statement by Russia about a truck bomb. So again, this is not Russian propaganda. Four main problems with the official Russian version, i.e. four reasons why it couldn't have been a truck bomb. Uh, analyze this and you will see that at the moment of explosion, and other people have said this besides, there seem to be things flying through the air, maybe coming from the water. We see that the two cars behind the truck were not destroyed and the truck was not the epicenter of the explosion. You can see the silhouette of the truck, not in the middle of the explosion. And at the very end of the video, it can be seen that the car coming in the other direction towards the camera, very close to the truck, was able to continue driving with its headlights still on, which I'm not an electronics expert, but you would expect with such an intensity of a truck bomb that even the electronics of the car would have been destroyed uh, if it were a truck bomb. There we are. So there's, there's a lot of things to, to doubt about this. Uh, just in passing as well, because uh, I didn't give you much about the status of the war, this is one of the longer term trends to watch. This is quite a famous graph, statistical map uh, in some parts of the internet now. It's the results of a survey question, would you fight for your country? And for once, the Germans are not at the bottom of the list. You can see that 18% of Germans, this was a few years ago now, mid 2010s, 18% of Germans said they would fight for their country. The lowest return was actually from the Netherlands, where I now live. 15% of the Dutch said they would fight for their country. But look, Poland, 47%. Ukraine, even higher than Russia, 62 versus 59 in Russia. The highest in Europe is Turkey. 73%. This is one of the uh, reasons why people shouldn't think that there should be a sudden collapse of the Ukrainian war effort. Uh, there is really quite a lot of potential uh, and a demographic resource in Ukraine uh, of men willing and, and able to fight even to this day, which has not been fully tapped. And after that, the older men and the women. So it's not going to be uh, won overnight by Russia, despite what people may be hearing. Then we come on to this interesting man, Chris Donnelly. And uh, this is his uh, semi-official biography. 
He is um, a commander of the noble order of St. Michael and St. George. So he's high up in the British Royal Awards establishment. He was a reserve intelligence officer, not a full-time serving officer, but a reserve officer in the British Army's intelligence corps. Then he became a Soviet studies specialist. Then he, at the very end of the Cold War, spent a whole decade and a half co-opted to NATO, where he advised four secretaries general as a special advisor. So he's already getting outside the main British military structure. And then he's begun running an advanced research and assessment group. And he's written books and articles on defense and security strategy and this keyword here, statecraft, how to get things done in foreign policy. Why do I mention him? Well, because he is very crucial to what's going on in both the Kerch situation, possibly, and certainly the media situation. Thegreyzone.com uh, has this piece, uh, which we, we explained in detail on UK Column News recently, written by the well-known Kit Clarenberg, a, a very uh, experienced author in the free media, who has the documents showing that in April, this man, Chris Donnelly, who runs that, shall we say, the deep state British statecraft for Russia and Ukraine, this man was already receiving an attachment from a military assistant showing how uh, uh, an attack could be mounted using missiles to blow up this bridge. This is really quite uh, telling. There is no direct linkage, I must hasten to add, but they were discussing it. Uh, and you can see in this piece, there are plans, although this... this um, uh, this annex, I think the graphic has been done by the grey zone, but it's based on the details in the annex. The, 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 this British semi-official uh, strategic club uh, was already making detailed plans to blow up the bridge. Here's the original email saying, thank you for sending me this structure. And we, we went into detail on this at the time. This Lithuanian man, who now in recent years has lived in Ukraine, called Audrius Budkevichus, he was the defense minister of Ukraine, and he's one of the key associates of these British guys. And he's important because he was named as the main man for Ukraine in the network of Chris Donnelly's organization, which is the uh, Integrity Initiative. And the think tank attached to it is called the Institute for Statecraft. So uh, Budkevichus was mentioned here. Uh, as, as one of the main players, if this plan could ever come to fruition. I stress, we don't see any direct evidence that this plan from April was the one that was used in October, but it is very curious. So if people want to look at that, the best search term to use is the name Donnelly, D-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y, on thegreyzone.com. And you can see that they were writing about him back in 2018 and 2019 already. This one here is very interesting. This article showing a swanky building in central London, which they call here the Temple of Covert Propaganda. This is the official headquarters of the Integrity Initiative. But this building on UK Columns website, which is a, a disused industrial building in Scotland, was the registered headquarters of the Integrity Initiative, miles from anywhere that's important. And you can find that by going to ukcolumn.org and searching using the search facility on the website for the word integrity. And you will find a great write-up of this integrity initiative. The main thing is that the men, uh, largely men, men and women uh, involved in this, even several years ago, were setting a kind of de facto British or NATO level foreign policy towards Russia, which was not on the main 
in, in the main uh, offices of government. It was outside those offices and it was run by former officers. I recognized the names of the two of the two main foreign office experts for Russia during my time who went into the integrity initiative when it was set up uh, after I had already left Britain. Uh, so this, these two pieces are particularly important if people want to read about that. A piece by David Scott called Integrity Initiative, Follow the Money, and one about the scale of the UK government's counter-disinformation initiative. So there is a huge amount uh, going on here. The Integrity Initiative, which, as I say, again, is, is to manage the whole of Europe's thinking about Russia, uh, has very deep roots. There was, in fact, a cluster, as the Integrity Initiative called it, of supportive journalists in every European country. This well-known site, Wikispooks, which is perhaps the best uh, wiki-type website where people track intelligence agencies and the deep state, Wikispooks has a whole page on the German cluster of the Integrity Initiative. So several years before this war broke out, there was already a list of people whom this British-led consortium wished to use as the main journalists to get the right message about Russia across. And you can see in this heading specifically German conditions that they recognize in London where they plan these things that German foreign policy is, has a particular sensitivity about Russia more than other European countries do towards Russia. And therefore, they need a special approach that, that just not, does not just mirror the, Ger the, the, the American discourse. So for the Germans, the line to be given to them by these friendly journalists directed from London is to emphasize that we don't want war in Europe. And then you can see that they are talking about the dangers to them of the Querfront, the AfD Die Linke coalition. And then you can see who the members were, Harold Ellison, Joachim Krause, uh, Marie-Louise Beck, Claudia von Salzen, Susanne Spahn. This one is questionable because he later became more objective, but Boris Reitschuster was mentioned in 2018. At least he was due to have a meeting with them then. Manfred Zapper, uh, Gemma Pertzkin. And then some more names are below that. So this is real stuff. This is London-based networking to get journalists to tell various European countries the correct Anglo-American view of Russia and Ukraine. Uh, here is a piece which people can find on the blogging site medium.com by Kit Klarenberg, who wrote that recent piece on the Kerch Bridge uh, email. Klarenberg was writing in 2019 about why Germany was the key of this whole uh, Anglo-American or largely British-led integrity initiative. Uh, you can see why that is, and uh, people can read this article for themselves and find about the specifically German conditions which are, are understood as important. Look, here's an original document or authored by Hannes Adonite. The Russian narrative is widely accepted by German public opinion. Germany should not fall in line with the US approach. So this is, this is written by the, uh, for a German, for the, the British handlers of the integrity initiative to make sure that this should work properly and that the Germans would get the correct anti-Russian views. If you're maybe, maybe thinking this is just um, uh, the work of a few dreamers, well, they get real world results. This tweet from 2018 is the most famous example that a colonel in Spain called Pedro Baños had been nominated to be the national security director in Madrid, uh, but he had committed the crime of speaking to RT and Sputnik. And therefore, Integrity Initiative actually boasted about the fact that through their journalist network, they had got his appointment reversed on the same day that it was announced. That's how much power these people have. 
there's a report in El País, the German, the Spanish newspaper of record about this. Uh, he was described in the El País as a Russia supporter because he spoke to Sputnik. So Colonel Pedro Banos was, uh, this, this is what we call a hit piece or a hatchet, hatchet job against Banos. And he got uh, removed from the new appointment. That's the power of these people. Now, finally, something about uh, more generally the power of the media. And this piece is actually from Die Zeit very recently. This man who wrote the, uh, this piece in Die Zeit, Volodymyr Yermolenko, is actually a philosopher. And on the 9th of October, he was asked to write a long piece in Die Zeit about who the Ukrainians are. You can see how much media organization this involves now to get the whole German population to accept the Kiev narrative completely. And there are seven points in this article about why the Ukrainians are the ideal Eastern Europeans and why they are uh, much better people than the Russians. <clears throat> the Russians are always tyrants. <clears throat> the Ukrainians are always pro-freedom. They're much more feminist than the Russians, etc., etc. But look at this uh, piece towards the end. This, is, I think, is an example of how Germany in particular uh, is having its guilt complex tapped in order to support Ukraine, because uh, those in the Integrity Initiative and similar bodies know very well that it is difficult to get the Germans to agree to, to fund this war and to send um, a lot of equipment to it. So let's have a look at um, the, the final paragraph by this uh, Ukrainian philosopher telling the German public why they should support the Kiev version of what's going on in the war. He says, in den vergangenen Jahrzehnten war die Ukraine bestrebt, in das europäische Haus, in die europäische Familie zurückzukehren. Aber heute gibt die Ukraine Europa nicht weniger, als sie von Europa... Uh, Ukraine doesn't give more to Europe than what it actually gets. It becomes a home for Europe. It makes it possible for Europe uh, to feel as a family by uh, going through death and sufferance and has an incredible ability to be born again and gives uh, Europe the chance to be reborn. In, in, in very blunt terms, you Germans are suspicious of the idea of nationhood because of your history. You see Europe as your nation. Therefore, you must support Ukraine to the bitter end so that you have uh, the right to have a nation. That's what's being said here. I'm nearly at the end of my uh, presentation, just a couple more regarding the final thing that um, Corbyn asked me to speak about, which is Florian Varvig's uh, write-up of a document leak which came from the German government, which has now been admitted by the German government. It's about Gleichschaltung. Of course, viewers outside Germany might not know that this is a Third Reich term for making everyone uh, sing from the same hymn sheet. Now, this is Varvig's uh, summary of what's going on, a narrative Gleichschaltung on the Ukrainian war. There's the German original. Many of your viewers will have seen this. Here is our translation of it, uh, German government's Ukraine war propaganda campaign, with the screenshots which have been provided uh, by a German federal civil servant about using people down to the age of six years old in order uh, to push the right narrative on this war. And I, I hope that with this, the, the way I've gone through this material, you can see that wherever you see this, there's Britain and America just behind. There are mentions of Britain and America in this leaked document. 
that there's very close coordination with various English-speaking countries on fighting disinformation and counter-disinformation. And if people go, I'll show you for a moment once again, the UK Columns articles on uh, Integrity Initiative. If you look at this man here, Andy Price, that's Price with a Y, who leads the Foreign Office's quite new section called Counter-Disinformation, that you, you can see that Britain is now the acknowledged expert in um, uh, labelling everything which is not uh, in the right kind of narrative as disinformation. And continental European countries, especially Germany, are taking this directly on from my old colleagues now. They seem to regard the Brits as the, the masters of the narrative. And the result is that Germans are being persuaded to indoctrinate six-year-olds as children's reporters uh, to make the country... Uh, strong against disinformation, and to use this horrible word, resilient. Uh, let's remind ourselves what the original German word is, because this is one of these English terms which has come into um, German, uh, unfortunately, uh, to increase the uh, the resilience. I can't find the word right now, but uh, it, uh, the word has been Germanized. But the underlying idea is this Anglo-American idea of resilient, meaning uh, just carry on and don't ask too many questions. So this idea is being brought into Germany now. And to show you finally how much trouble it has been to persuade Germans of the, the risk here, look here, Florian Warweg, who some viewers will know, used to be with RT in Germany before he started, started uh, Nachdenkzeiten and became the editor there. He has shown that the... Um, uh, material has been confirmed. The, there has been a, a parliamentary question answered in the Bundestag uh, by the Bundesregierung, which uh, admits that this document was genuine. But look, just to show you an example of how difficult it is to persuade a lot of Germans that there is a problem here, you can see a, a more expletive response here. Here's an interesting one. Uh, and Alexander says, what's the problem? He says, agreements are being made to recognize Russian disinformation campaigns. What's the problem for that? The only people who would have a problem with that would be those Russian disinformation merchants. So the whole vocabulary has been taken over from the English speaking countries. Even my translation of Varvig's piece got, got mocked because of course, uh, as a responsible journalist, he says, SPD Gefürters Innenministerium, this is just a detail. When you have a coalition government, you need to say which party runs which ministry. And so my translation of it, socialist-run interior minister, ministry, apparently causes mirth uh, and, and amusement here. So people just will not believe what they're being told, and they keep seeing it as foreigners who don't understand Germany. Uh, one tweet, which is not in this list of replies, but which I saw, said, um, you have misunderstood Florian Warweg's piece, you should learn German, uh, Warweg is tricking you, uh, he's using you foreigners to attack Germany. So much of this work done by the Integrity Initiative has already uh, taken root in Germany and has shown, uh, it's already shown there's a large number of people in German public life uh, just swallow this idea. So I'll stop sharing the screen there. And if you have any questions on that, I'll be glad to take them. I have a question. How, how real do you think these commentaries are? I mean, there might be a lot of bots in there. It is interesting that a lot of these Twitter accounts uh, were set up very recently and have very few followers. We see the same in English more and more. And there's in fact a, 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 a shorthand term for these accounts now. In Britain, we call them 77 Brigade uh, mm -hmm. because that is a dedicated brigade of the British Army. 
which does disinformation uh, fighting online, counter disinformation. How many but people? That's, that's not the only part of the British military. There's a whole 13 signals regiment which does the same thing. And UK column often shows a graphic showing just how many different arms of the British security state there are that do this. And this is one of the reasons why uh, Britain is teaching America, Australia and the European continent how to do this disinformation uh, struggle now because they're, they're so far ahead of them. How many people do you think work for these kind of online uh, brigades? Thousands and thousands. If you uh, top them all up, I don't have a number in my head, but it's not controversial anymore that there's thousands of them. And if, of course, each you person know, can be can be managing a lot of uh, robot accounts as well. Mm -hmm. Both yes. Do you know firms that uh, that are advertising that they do that they offer such uh, services in the internet and want to be hired as uh, as bots? Do you, have you seen this? I haven't. I don't want to name any companies without being absolutely sure. And no, I, I haven't seen firm indications of that. There are, however, because I'm also a translator and an interpreter, I know that one of the, the uh, similar things which goes on is that there are um, companies which transcribe and machine translate material from foreign languages into English. And most of them are based in English speaking countries. And they advertise for speakers of various foreign languages so that uh, machines can get good enough to produce convincing information in these various languages. Uh, usually it's presented as being the other way around. This is so that messages in foreign languages can be understood in English by marketers whose native language is English or government yeah. people. But, it can, you know, one of the big secrets or, or insights that you gain from all, everything to do with electronic intelligence is if something can flow one way through a pipeline, a, a theoretical or a literal pipeline, it can flow the other way. And this, this was actually an insight which the, the Forschungsamt uh, in Third Reich, Germany had best of all, and this, this insight went to America, that if you have a total view of the population and the information's flowing from the population to the controllers, they can always talk back to the population. And so whenever a company says we are trying to make the world understandable to a marketer based in New York or NATO in, in, in whatever in London, then the information can go back and influence the individuals. Well, this, um, this uh, integrity initiative, I think we at some point talked about their role in the uh, whole Corona narrative. Um, could you, could you like, uh, you know, remind us on what you think, um, or do you know, have any further information? I don't know if we spoke with you about this, but I've heard it mentioned in this context with the, with the yes. Corona um, narrative. Plus, also this fact that we have all these strange um, uh, terms with uh, apparently like English roots, like flattening the curve and all these kind of things. So that must come from an from an English speaking source because it's absolutely foreign to the German language. Yes, uh, this is a particular focus of mine as I am a linguist. Um, all I can say is uh, it's very very obvious here in the Netherlands because they are much uh, quicker than Germans would be to copy an English phrase. They don't have the same pride in their language that the Germans have. But even in France, where they have even more pride in their own language, you can see in France, Belgium, Switzerland, that the, uh, the terminology is taken from English. Uh, what this indicates to me is that the planning organizations 
for these things are not usually the European Union and probably not even NATO because NATO is an officially bilingual organization where to this day French is the second or, or, or the main official language together with English. They seem to be things which are planned largely in obscure English-speaking think tanks, the mm -hmm. private think tanks of, of well-known figures the Rockefellers and the Gates and uh, all these figures of the world, the Soros figures, and then put into various national and international governments. Um, so I don't have specifics for you on the role of the Integrity Initiative on COVID because the Integrity Initiative was from its outset planned to be a way of containing Russia and of persuading the, um, the Europeans to be much less uh, neutral on Russia and to be much more Anglo-American in their view of Russia. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me if some of the, the, the same characters had jumped into this new COVID uh, feast, because there's only a certain number of psychological uh, and narrative spinning people in the world. And they work as consultants largely in London, New York and Washington, a few in Brussels, and probably not even that many in, in European capitals like Berlin. I don't think they're needed there. I think they just push the stuff out to the European capitals. Yeah, I guess it's like maybe some, uh, like some general, like some source, a spider in the web, and then they adapt it to the needs or the sort of mentality of the individual population. Because I guess it's different if you target like Netherlands or uh, Turkey, like already what you said yes. about the willingness to defend their country. So you have to go for, for different, uh, sure. have to look for different approaches. I'm if you if you have a if you are opposition in your country in Germany or wherever, um, you experience that within the opposition, you always have uh, submarines. You always have people who infiltrate those oppositions. Is there any possibility to find it out? To find out, uh, uh, or are you have do you have indicators how to how you how you could find it out? Are, are there questions or are, are there methods to find out? You have to use a lot of common sense, basically, Wolfgang, and it is it is possible, but you have to use your intuition. I cannot give people magic formulae. And in my day, it was actually rare, certainly for my intelligence service, GCHQ, to use trolls. It became legally possible and technically possible while I was in GCHQ. Um, but it was still something which was frowned upon. It's always been a specialism more of the police and the domestic security agencies. Are they, are they uh, also working, those trolls, are they also working for big companies to, for, the, for, for instance, if a company does something uh, that someone organizes the opposition in the, pub, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the public? So if you have Monsanto and you, and there is someone from Monsanto going to the farmers organizing a very bad resistance against Monsanto. Yeah. This, this does happen. It's much less studied than it should be. And one of the terms for it is astroturfing. Yes. And this is because, of course, astroturf is fake grass. And in English and now also in German, we have this horrible term grassroots, meaning uh, yes. coming up from the people. So a grassroots, grassroots movement is genuine and the fake equivalent is an astroturf movement. And right. astroturfing, of course, is producing a fake groundswell of opinion. And this has I, been... I had my students working on, on this, on lobbying, and they found on a big German firm working in Germany, they were offering astroturfing in yes. internet. You see, it starts just about on the right side of the law as something fairly innocuous, help your marketing. 
So chocolate producers in Britain were some of the first to use astroturfing to create fake public campaigns to bring back old chocolate bars and this kind of thing. Uh, and then it spreads from there into government through the, the nudge and spin world in which Britain and France, as, as Brian and Gerish and I have told you in previous appearances, Britain and France pioneered this and then pushed it to America, Australia and Germany. Uh, that, that's, that's part of it, yes. But I am getting increasingly the sense, though I cannot prove it so I won't give names, I'm getting increasingly a sense that major tax-exempt corporations and major corporation, corporate entities who are so close to government, as we know, both in pharmaceutical and in military yeah. industry, they are definitely employing people to go and rubbish and insult everyone who yes. disagrees with them. And you know, use your intuition. If somebody agrees with your position, but is, to use a technical term, he's an accelerationist. He's saying, let's go quicker and be more resolute with this agenda. We'll get them. Yeah, we'll, exactly. Yeah, Let's go and yes. protest outside the Altverticus Amp tomorrow and, and bring a few sticks with you. Well, that's a, a, quick, a quick way to, to spot who the, who the fake guys are. You know, the devil always plays on, on both sides. This is what we have to learn. Yeah. And, and in fact, the, the best of all analysts, to my mind, in uh, the British uh, free media is Richard D. Hall. And uh, one of the things he said again and again, richplanet.net is his website, where he has hundreds of investigations. Uh, he came to a very uh, interesting conclusion that the powers that be had decided they were never going to get anywhere in sophisticated Western countries now by saying all this truth that you're hearing is nonsense. No, instead, they tried to push the needle too far and say, accept all this and also accept that aliens will kill you tomorrow. You know, accept all this and accept that Schultz is a reptile. Uh, otherwise, you're not really in the truth movement. Yes. Yes. That's yes they are very skilled. We have to learn. Thank we you do. so much for, for your information. Uh, it's very interesting. And uh, yes, it's getting complicated. It is getting very, very complicated indeed. But uh, and in fact, I've just mentioned Richard Hall, so uh, I'll mention his catchphrase again to close, which is, believe only half of what you see and none of what you hear. <laughs> yeah, I know his work. I, th I, th I think it's very impressive. I've, uh, you know, watched a lot of his videos and, and found it very interesting. Maybe we should talk to him in the, here in the uh, committee at some point. This would be interesting. I think he would be very good to talk to you, actually, yes. Super. Yeah, well, um, Alex, I think this has been uh, very inspiring, you know, like I, I'm definitely going to look more into this integ integrity initiative. Very interesting. And um, they might be some some of the sources that are out there to uh, blur the Certainly. vision. And it, it is inspiring because uh, the best thing people can do if they're what if they're listening to the to the German interpretation of this and they think, well, how can I battle this strange foreign beast, this Anglo-American spin machine is mercilessly mock anyone in officialdom who uses bad German in their writing, insist that good native German should be written. And if you find that the person cannot do it, that they keep falling back on these trite phrases, which are clearly translated from English, then mock them for that and say, do you not have any original thoughts? It really is an Achilles heel of these guys. <laughs> okay. okay Thank you thanks, for your hints. Thanks ever very so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, fan fantastic. So we just spoke to Alex uh, Thompson and um, from UK uh, Column News. You sh should also check that out. The, uh, go to their website and see what they have, what kind of information they have. I think it's going to be very yeah, inspiring.
Ähm, ja, jetzt sprechen wir wieder Deutsch. Wir haben bei uns den nächsten Gast und zwar ist es Robert Jungnischke. Jungnischke. Uh, he is um, an expert uh, for prevention of blackouts for small and medium-sized companies. And he will be speaking about uh, possible scenarios that we might run into soon. Mr. Jungnischke, are you with us now? Well, he's still on mute. Yes, I was muted, but now I'm here. Yeah, it would be great uh, if you could uh, tell our viewers who you are. I have been busy for the last two years uh, in dealing with energy supply in Germany, and I found that this energy supply uh, looks safe, but uh, it is insecure, but it's no longer what we uh, expect and know, and has no longer the reliability that we used to. And uh, through that, I uh, I thought that uh, small and medium-sized company have the same same problem. We have the problem. Uh, electricity still comes reliably from the uh, uh, wall socket. But apart from the price rises, nobody uh, uh, can feel it. And my job is to talk about energy uh, supply, to uh, create some transparency. And we've heard a good uh, contribution from England that there is a lot of propaganda. And in terms of energy supply and renewables, is uh, propaganda is even worse than uh, we've heard about Ukraine. And the problem is that um, that uh, the small and medium-sized companies are, are not uh, following what's happening in the background. And I try to uh, prepare small and medium-sized companies and private uh, households uh, for the possibility of a blackout and uh, about uh, switch-offs. There was a study, a TAB study from German parliament, and it clearly said that if there is a blackout that doesn't affect the whole country, then the federal government will not be able to protect and feed the uh, population, and they have to do it themselves. But the problem is we have everything under control. There will be no uh, blackout, and uh, unfortunately, many still believe that and do not prepare consequently. That sounds very worrying. It is very worrying. What about the energy supply situation at the moment in Germany? Well, uh, the situation is uh, the following. We have uh, an energy reversal policy, and uh, what they have done is they have switched off conventional uh, power plants, uh, uh, nuclear and uh, coal, and have switched on wind power and uh, solar collectors. Now, the problem is you can't uh, replace one by the other. A coal or nuclear power uh, station can produce uh, electricity as and when needed. A solar or wind uh, power facility can only do that when the sun shines or there is wind. And that's our problem. We are at a point now 
where we have so uh, few uh, reliably producing power stations. I mean, at the end, uh, we, we have uh, extended uh, the running of nuclear power stations until April. But if we didn't have a gas crisis, we will have an undersupply of reliable energy. And on top of that, in uh, the spring, and on top of that, we have the gas cri crisis that started in September 21. And that means we have an energy crisis already because our gas storage uh, will be uh, depleted in February or April. And then up to 46 gigawatt uh, of the 82 gigawatt that we need at peak hours. And that cannot be compensated? No, it cannot be compensated because Russian uh, natural gas that we got, it was 55% of the uh, requirements that we had. And our uh, natural gas uh, share in the total energy uh, requirement is 27%. And there's a gap which you cannot close because you need to know uh, that that the big uh, sub, uh, producers of uh, gas and uh, oil, we have long-term uh, supply contracts with our uh, clients. So we have uh, given up one supplier easily, but there isn't anyone who can pick that up. And uh, you can see that by looking at uh, the following. Uh, uh, Habeck was in Qatar a few months ago and said, we made an agreement for the supply of LNG. And Qataris say, uh, we, we don't know about that. We don't have any spare LNG. Perhaps in two, three years' time when uh, new fields come into production. And now our chancellor, I think he was in Saudi Arabia and said he came, comes back with LNG and what was it? He was able to organize one tanker full. But in order to fill the gap left by Russia, we need 680 tankers full of LNG. And that tells you this is uh, completely impossible. And that's a drama that uh, Germany is faced with uh, because it will simply uh, uh, destroy the existence of medium sized companies. It's but that's absurd that they're claiming to have uh, such great successes, but that was just a drop in the ocean. When I started to look into it, and when I, uh, I at the beginning, I said, okay, perhaps I'm just uh, there stupid, but uh, my wife always tells me uh, there are some intelligent people in the ministries, and the longer you look at it, the longer you find that uh, you know, we are we are seeing sabotage uh, to the German energy supply because that wind and uh, solar energy supplies work is has been known uh, for 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 the last 20 years because there is darkness and darkness means it's a time in which wind and solar power cannot uh, make a substantial contribution to energy supply and the longest phase is in August. 2014, uh, starting in 2014, and it lasted three and a half months. So that means for three and a half months, uh, solar and wind energy was not available. And that was the reason why uh, uh, government uh, said, uh, you know, started gas power stations because they knew that we need a shadow supply that is as big as uh, the uh, the ones that uh, that are not available. But um, 
you know, but you have double the cost because you have double the energy park. Yeah, and apparently it wasn't so easy. Um, I mean, you see with a nuclear power plant, it takes a long time before you can get it up and running again. But with gas, uh, this is what, from what I learned now from the political discussion that um, gas cannot be replaced because uh, it can be used always to fill in the exactly. gaps. Exactly. That's one reason. And uh, gas was cheap and nuclear power uh, was was not uh, an option uh, because nuclear power was being has been criticized for 30 years so the greens uh, couldn't say we take nuclear energy and we only have to look at uh, our neighboring countries they all uh, uh, use nuclear energy because it's the only alternative to supply a country with a cheap and reliable energy i i read that uh, companies like uh, rolls-royce and so on um, that they are actually specializing on that and they sell nuclear power plants and, and whatever happens um, to the nuclear waste? Well, let's start with nuclear waste. I, uh, I would call it the nuclear waste lie. Why do we have it? For one reason only, because the export of spent fuel rods, i.e. those fuel rods that are spent, uh, was uh, banned by the nuclear law. Why? I think because they wanted to create a problem and an argument against nuclear energy. Because the problem is, we have no fast breeders in Germany. The only thing what was built was Kalk and it was never put on stream. So uh, the fuel rods that are spent in Germany, because our technology cannot make use for them, can be sold abroad and they would welcome them with open arms because they could be used as fuel rods in their fast breeders. And, uh, in that, uh, and we wouldn't have a nuclear waste problem, but they didn't want that. So if you look, take a look at nuclear energy, uh, uh, it's, li it's like reading a detective story. There's lies and, uh, and crime and everything. So to answer your question, uh, whether the small nuclear power stations is a solution has to be shown, because the problem is the safety uh, is, uh, aspect is relatively uh, large, and we, you don't have a lot of output. And the truth is, the uh, larger the nuclear power station, the larger the share in uh, electricity production, and the higher the, uh, you know, uh, so the, the small ones will not catch on. Americans are looking into it, but have looked at uh, current literature on that. And the concept that I uh, think ha has a future is a dual fluid reactor that was developed in Germany because it has a huge advantage. First, it can be operated with thorium, which is available, uh, you know, for many thousands of years, and it's uh, completely safe. There is no meltdown. If there is a, a, a fault, it will switch off uh, automatically. And that's the second big uh, advantage. And uh, the size is scalable. Well, that's interesting. So far, I've never heard no. so much about it. Uh, we're talking about propaganda. If we look, take a closer look, you find that uh, fear is created and insecurity, and everything is done to 
derogate nuclear energy. Let's start with uh, Fukushima. If there is any official line on Fukushima, uh, there was always uh, the story about thousands of deaths and a big disaster, which is suggesting that this was as a consequence of the nuclear accident. No, it wasn't. There wasn't a single one. There was uh, many who, due to the evacuation, etc. And today, even the Japanese say they overreacted. They are with the evacuation, with the uh, people you Yes, the tsunami caused the fatalities. That was a problem. And obviously, there was a meltdown. Well, it was a water explosion, a water a steam explosion. But let me repeat the cause of the nuclear accident was that the wall wasn't built high enough. They just didn't do it. They knew that the wall wasn't big enough, tall enough, but the actual accident did not cause any fatality. It was all caused by the tsunami. You, you, you go ahead. No, you, okay. Uh, I'm going back a bit. The nuclear waste that you still have from the first breeders and how how, how much is it or is, is there then no no waste at all yes of course uh, with the current nuclear technology obviously you end up with nuclear waste but the longer i can use the fuel rod and the more I can exploit it, uh, the lower the residual radioactivity. So the amount of uh, uh, waste in terms of tons is the same, but the uh, radioactivity is lower. And what is ratio? So, I don't know. I'm not a fuel a nuclear power specialist. Mm, when you look into this, I think you mustn't start through the scenario of uh, starting to discuss nuclear waste, uh, you have to start with, with saying, asking, how can I supply the whole world reliably and cheap with uh, clean energy? And how much waste is generated? And how can I store the waste? And the uh, nuclear power technology is uh, that they use thorium and that the radioactive substances are much lower and that the amount of waste is handleable. You can see that in the specialist publication, it is a solution and you should just accept it. And you can see uh, the whole world is uh, 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 relying on nuclear power. And the only thing people who say it's evil is the German, Germans. Well, you probably know Hermann Scheer. Uh, unfortunately passed away a few years ago and his main problem uh, with the energy supply was the monopolization and thus uh, that the population could be held at ransom well, by the big companies what did we have we have we are being pressurized by the green movement and our rights are being taken away and and we all get poorer because of this uh, unaffordable energy. Um, I think if you were to control the market a little bit and trying to uh, avoid monopolies, then uh, it it would 
be possible. Markets have always been self-regulating before the state intervened. It becomes difficult only when the state intervenes, uh, thinking that they know what is right. We see that with the renewables. How could it be that uh, wind park operators are not uh, are not uh, uh, do not have to pay for the cost of connecting to the grid. The, uh, um, you have to take a global view. As uh, long as we had the big conglomeration, we had affordable energy. However, uh, trouble started when the market was opened and uh, the production was uh, split from trading and uh, and the network that is when the problem started would, would it be possible with these small decentralized nuclear power stations uh, to still regionalize the responsibility for the supply of energy because then you don't have um, the necessity if there's like a lot of wind or a lot of coal, uh, because the, those uh, small power plants you can put wherever you want. Because I think this business of um, being blackmailed, you see that everywhere. I mean, where are all the small and medium-sized uh, traders? Fewer and fewer of them. The big ones are trying to kill the little ones. And you know the bigger ones grow faster, and uh, these mechanisms you have everywhere. And uh, when it comes to the supply of uh, energy, waste management, food, um, and also when it comes to the media, the moment we have the media, we are right down. Mr. Vodak, I would. I have to digress here because I think it's important. If you look today, we have who uh, calls uh, who who has a say so. It's three, uh, four financial conglomerates in uh, from America, and they have the majority in a lot of companies, and they direct our economy. That's the situation. Then we have the other trend: the countries, the federal government, and uh, local communities have privatized everything that was state-owned. And as a result of that, uh, the whole thing got worse, because now we have big uh, companies who own half of uh, the cities, and uh, they can have platform economy like Amazon. They've uh, made sure that uh, there are no longer any shops in the inner cities, um, although I wonder whether inner cities would have any chance against such platform economies. I would say that the critical infrastructure that today is uh, privately owned, 80% of uh, is privately owned, but is essential for the security of, of the population would have to be put in, uh, would have to be nationalized so that the state uh, would enable to uh, uh, provide a secure supply uh, because today the state isn't able to do anything because it's not owned by the state and because they cannot tell private companies what to do. And uh, going back to the energy supply, the dilemma is I have a producer, I have a network operator, I have uh, 
an electricity exchange and everyone can do uh, what they want. They are critical infrastructure and should in, uh, supply a secure uh, uh, supply, but they're obligated to their shareholders. And as long as the state doesn't interfere, they won't do it because managers are measured by the results they deliver. And I think that is the, the, uh, the, 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 the fault of the system. 80% of critical infrastructure is uh, owned by well, private We had an companies. Minister of Energy in Schleswig-Holstein, Günther Janssen, and he then said, we don't want uh, to pay the energy providers, not for them to sell so much, but so that the people have enough power. So they had to teach uh, the population how to use less. That's interesting. You can do that for everything, for mobility, for health, for everything. Um, but people uh, waste not and want not. And uh, this goes more into the service area. So who makes sure that people have enough of what they need? Uh, the question is, of course, uh, today, why are we so prone to uh, blackouts? The reason is that we have always had too much uh, electricity and everything uh, that was possible was switched to uh, uh, electricity. There is no supermarket that has a mechanical uh, cash register. I mean, for example, electronic payment. And that is our problem. We have uh, started to rely on something in the belief that it would always be available. And now, when it is in short supply, we um, f uh, noticed that uh, it is prone to uh, failure. If we set our store in nuclear power, uh, we would have that. I mean, we'd only have to use the CCS uh, technology to capture uh, the carbon, and we would have been able to continue with uh, coal power stations. Let's have a look at the climate crisis. There is a big uh, number of scientists who uh, question the narrative of climate crisis and the danger of CO2. And you could say, is that actually correct? Is it actually necessary to save CO2 with all the costs that this entails? And uh, other information, as you know, are also being ignored. Uh, if you make sure that society uh, is prosperous and and healthy, then they, it will automatically uh, uh, care for the environment. And here we do the opposite. We destroy society by telling people what to do about the environment. Well, I think um, this allocation of responsibilities uh, for how to live and is important. So it's not a faraway company that may not even be in Germany, but somewhere in Europe or further away is responsible. So whenever you have a, a, a fault message, uh, it should be done in such a way that everybody understands and who is responsible, who can I contact? This is something that is of utmost importance so that uh, we uh, think in those terms in our society that we are noticing mistakes uh, 
You know, what are they doing now? They're trying out new technologies, they're doing research. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of agricultural chemistry, but I'm also thinking about the economy. Uh, how long does it take before we become aware of a mistake? That's a bad development, definitely. And if you have well, if a you regional have responsibility, responsibility, then of course then people I'll notice think... things a lot faster. That's my personal view, you know. <laughs> I think all that has been noticed, but for reasons I don't understand, they uh, keep uh, to the ideology. The gas crisis started in September 21. That means that's when politicians knew we won't have enough gas. The background being the years before, three years before, uh, 20 gigawatt uh, coal power stations were switched off in Europe. It was bad because there was corona, then there was a dip, No, not uh, less energy was used, and in summer 21, uh, the business recovered and needed more energy. And since the coal power stations uh, were gone, uh, uh, gas power stations were used. They were only intended for peak uh, demand. And then three important nuclear power stations were switched off. Now, these nuclear power stations would have been able to continue for the next 20 years. Why did they not order new fuel rods so that the six remaining power stations could be uh, uh, in operation to supply 10 gigawatt of electricity? Why did they ignore all that? And why, when the manufacturers of uh, fuel rods uh, approached uh, governments that had normally supply time is 12, uh, 60 months, we managed in six months, nobody did uh, anything. And only now... Uh, you always say, uh, nobody asked the question, who, who is that nobody? Who should it be? I think it was General Electric uh, who turned to approach the government and said, we can uh, supply fuel rods so that we, you can operate, uh, continue to operate the nuclear power stations. But there was no interest. And only now, when the Federal Network Agency intervened and said, look, uh, we are not uh, the, 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 the gas in the gas storage facilities isn't, uh, isn't ours, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's owned by who? Who is the owner? Well, they're largely owned by a subsidiary of Gazprom. Um, unfortunately, Kibura uh, says there is no gas storage that is owned by the federal government. However, uh, one is Unipa, and Unipa is financed by Germany, so you could hope that uh, the content of uh, the Unipa gas storage is available to us. But the uh, fact is, we have this gas gap, and until a few days ago, uh, it took until a few days ago uh, to agree to continue to operate the last remaining three uh, nuclear power stations. But now they don't have fuel rods, and that sounds to me like intention. Uh, I'm referred to Kaczynski and Friedman um, as uh, American strategy. They said we want uh, to weaken Europe and Germany. And for example, the Americans banned us from uh, starting to use Nord Stream 2, and that had an impact on uh, our gas supply. And the various people on the internet say that the uh, explosion. 
uh, on Nord Stream was uh, re required uh, North uh, American support. Yeah, I'm still wondering about that. If it is a subsidiary of, of Gazprom that, that uh, owns these storage facilities, I mean, these are all international companies, of course, everywhere. We don't really know who they are. There are hardly any national companies. Uh, uh, everything with shares is international. Therefore, it's a little bit strange that uh, uh, people still can still buy furniture made of Russian wood at IKEA. Uh, that could not be true. They are supporting Putin when they buy a, a table at IKEA. So isn't that crazy? Such craziness is what people actually start to believe. Well, the propaganda works very well. Uh, the main media are firmly under uh, political control, and I would even go as far as saying under American political control, and they spread American propaganda. And who said that? Uh, when uh, a war starts, uh, the truth dies first, and that's what we're seeing now. Such a pity, uh, but the media, they go along with it, and people tend to believe the media because they depend on them if they want to know what's happening in the world. And that's the bad part about it. Uh, too bad that uh, not more journalists say, no, I won't go along with that. There are those who are against it. There is the initiative uh, against uh, the, the public television in Germany. There are those journalists that seek truth. They want to seek truth for us. That's their duty. And that's something that uh, we should insist on. Every journalist joining in uh, has lost his uh, credibility. Well, let me put it this way. I think uh, we can find various sources of information on the internet today. And for German, German citizens, uh, I would say many are uh, uh, they don't think for themselves. Everything is nice to uh, watch a talk show on TV or to uh, watch the daily news and the view of the world stays the same. And I think many are not yet uh, willing to... Neither, neither do I like the uh, talk shows. I refuse to listen to them. They are nice graphics uh, on the internet. Uh, who is involved in German media, uh, what American think tanks are involved, and what moderators are invited to present papers. The, uh, the, the system is completely under the rule of the Americans. So what do you tell the people uh, when there is no more electricity? What are they going to do? Well, perhaps let me say one thing. Whatever they ask is, uh, what happens after a blackout? Uh, the likelihood of a blackout, uh, to ask uh, uh, about the likelihood is the wrong question, because likelihood can only be calculated for things that have occurred quite often. For example, if you buy a car and you want to get insurance and the insurance company uh, will enter your data and they know exactly uh, what damage will uh, occur because there's millions of data from similar uh, car owners and they can calculate the likelihood. And with blackout, it's wrong. A blackout is a risk and a blackout is, well, the biggest uh, danger that the German population and the German uh, and German business are faced with. Let me explain what a blackout is, because uh, 
the problem is that in the uh, media called blackout, they call it blackout, and they all uh, talk about the consequence of uh, an absence of power. The problem is that uh, when there is a uh, uh, when a blackout is a local event where part of the network fails. However, the overarching network and the entire data infrastructure is still operating. But a real blackout uh, would involve something completely different. With this happening in the area where this is happening, and because it's a trigger event, uh, I, I would uh, assume that it would uh, affect uh, uh, Germany or Europe. It means there is a physical separation of the power stations without uh, from the network. And that means the data networks will uh, collapse. And that's the real disaster. I said earlier that the problem is that we operate, that we use electricity for everything. And that means that nothing would uh, work. You know, how many computers, centers, routers, internet hubs, etc., are installed in this data network and ensure the transportation of data, the entire logistics uh, uses data networks. <laughs> Uh, private uh, consumers uh, buy through data services. Uh, authorities are switching over to electronic files. Everything need, uh, needs uh, clouds and electricity. Now the following happens. Everything is dead and nothing much has happened until then, except that the data transactions are interrupted. And now uh, they restart again once power is uh, restored. This will take one or two weeks uh, for Germany. But the data uh, services don't yet work. When you when you switch off electronics that works 24/7 and then restore power, then experts, IT experts, estimate that 30% of the devices will fail. Now imagine just for Germany, 30% of routers, uh, PCs, etc., would fail. That means before I can restore data services, I need to replace the hardware. Well, there isn't that much. Uh, in store because it is delivered just in time from Asia and the problems are well known. So if I then, uh, if once I have uh, eventually repaired everything and there will be a lack of IT specialists as well, then I can uh, start repairing the software and all the data streams, payment, ordering, etc., all that needs to be uh, uh, corrected by hand manually. And we have thousands of data services. You can imagine how many millions of processes uh, need to be controlled because before you can put the whole network into operation and all that happens after blackout. And that's why it is different from a power failure. That would mean that our uh, uh, industry would be dead after a blackout. One day uh, would cost 6 billion euros. And you can imagine if you have the consequential damage. And many companies, particularly the small and medium ones, will uh, simply not be able to survive it because uh, no business operation is possible for many uh, months. There will not be customers, there will not be suppliers. We will have a real food supply crisis. Imagine uh, meat production. 
uh, all uh, all the animals will die when there is a blackout and it will take ages before it is all rebuilt. You know, uh, we, we are talking about uh, farmers who have 200, 2,000 cows. Everything is fully automatic when they have no uh, electricity. Yeah, then you have to open the stable so let the pigs and the cows run wild. You are not wrong. I advised a pig breeder and we found a concept how he could save his pigs and we um, could uh, contribute to the feeding of uh, the population. There was a, a slaughterhouse nearby and that is something that, and the same goes, uh, much more dramatic is uh, milk cows. If they are not milked for uh, three days, they will have an infection and So uh, we have die. to learn how to milk again. Well, to organize that, uh, to milk a cow twice a day and uh, the farmer needs to feed all these people, probably needing 100 people for 200 uh, cows. Look, what I, I wanted to uh, show you what uh, the consequence of a blackout is, uh, you know, in contrast to a power cut. We'll be in a situation uh, that is like uh, 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 that following the Second World War. war. Uh, the uh, population has to be warned, and uh, we are again talking about information. It would be nice, you said, if the population was given proper information. And now, why? Does Mr. Scholz say in the summer interview that he is in full control of the blackout risk? He can't because uh, uh, it can be the cause can be a cyber attack, terror, uh, earthquake, technical favor, complexity favor, and extreme weather, or a sunstorm, or um, human failure. He doesn't. He isn't in, in control of any of that. And the energy policy is accelerating the danger, and it would be important to inform the population about this in such a way that they get up from their bums and go to the supermarkets and prepare themselves. Because if they were prepared, then we wouldn't have human tragedies that will occur when in a city like Berlin there is a blackout, because uh, on the first a day uh, they'll storm the supermarkets on day three they'll have civil war and uh, that's something that uh, that uh, that uh, the government doesn't do uh, there are people who say now we have banned the risk of blackout and this is a lie it's not banned at all i've looked at the uh, figures today as an indicator for the status of our network there are the interferences of network operators. They're called redispatches, and they're an indicator uh, to or, or about the health of the network. And uh, we had three per year. Uh, last year, we had 8,600, and today we have 10,444. So we, with regard to the increase of redispatches, and these are uh, needed to uh, stabilize our power supply. And then our politicians claim that everything is safe. We, ha we are in full, in full control. And that's really um, a big lie. You know, and I believe they don't want to tell the truth to the general population. 
this is this is this criminal and I don't understand why because I'm always uh, accused of uh, causing panic now if federal government were to warn us then uh, there would be panic obviously but you could channel it by saying by 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 using security personnel uh, to to keep order at supermarkets but so the supermarkets would be empty but uh, the supply would uh, would would work and within a few months the people would have a supply of two to three uh, weeks and if you don't do that uh, you postpone it to the moment where the blackout occurs and then you have the same uh, panic uh, the difference being that the supply chains will no longer work and then uh, the uh, supermarket will be stormed which means it can no longer be used after the power is restored and we have a panic a disorder and a lot of deaths and uh, we need to avoid out void and we've seen that uh, with corona when politicians want you to do something they cause so much anxiety and uh, terror that they that you will do that and uh, what i'm worried about uh, is that they don't do it well you you don't have to be afraid it would be enough to be reasonable the point is uh, that uh, the population uh, is, is 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 lazy and uh, you need to trigger to cause them to act and i think without causing drastic fear it won't work and the media are already talking about blackout but they're talking about locally uh, uh, limited events and and not about the total blackout that well before see the entire communication propaganda of course is nourished by these electronically accessible media what happens if that isn't there anymore if social media uh, cannot be used to dispatch information what does it mean practically so people in situ need to organize to get information but what does it mean to maintain public order or, or also a, a state narrative which would also collapse would that be good no uh, you've hit the nail on the head and that's why I see at the moment something positive in the crisis uh, I don't I'm, I'm worried that it will occur but um, all uh, systems break down are breaking down uh, uh, emergency services use WOS uh, radio it's a digital uh, radio uh, it needs electricity so all the emergency services won't be able to communicate in a blackout and the second point is because officially there isn't a blackout the emergency uh, services will be affected as well because they also follow the narrative that it will only be uh, geographically limited uh, 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 event and what do they do when the uh, family needs help they will be at home and that will uh, uh, lead to a break uh, down uh, in uh, emergency services which was found in a study uh, dated from 2011 the 
uh, interior secu uh, security will break down because they are not prepared, neither federal government nor local government. That is the drama. You can't imagine it because the experts and their people like Professor Schwartz uh, from the from Cottbus, who uh, said uh, in August on uh, a, a TV program that uh, the likelihood is high that there will be a blackout affecting the entire country, and he is responding for energy supply and high voltage technology. The problem is that po politicians ignore it, and they do, because our energy change over policy is responsible for uh, uh, this uh, uh, um, poor energy supply system. Incredible. The majority of the population is not informed, and that's a drama. Uh, most people will be completely well, unprepared. We've seen images from Africa when all of a sudden uh, supermarkets and the storage areas were plundered and looted because people didn't have anything to eat. That's going to be happening in Germany too. All right. I once heard a person, I don't know where I heard that, but, but the best thing you can do if you are afraid of uh, such civil war situations where everybody fights uh, against everybody to do, try to survive, that you have a good relationship with your neighbors and that together you try to find reasonable solutions with the people you are sharing the living area with and who are in the same situation. Um, and it would be good to actually know your neighbors and organize in such a fashion that you help each other in case of illness or if something doesn't work and then you have a better chance to survive than uh, in any other way 100% right i uh, offer personal advice but in order to reach uh, people quicker i offer online video workshops that uh, you can buy and I've done a new one that says survival in big cities and high-rise buildings, and it contains exactly this tip. You have to try to find um, friends. And now comes a hint for our viewers. We have the following problem, and uh, let me quote Corona again. With Corona, we have the situation that that there's the, those people who are, take a critical view and then the others who would not mind to be uh, vaccinated for the tenth time. Now, uh, with regard to blackouts, there are some people starting to get worried, but they don't know how to prepare. With these people, you can talk immediately. They listen to you and they will implement it. However, on the other hand, there are these uh, people who follow the narrative of the mainstream uh, media. And they say, look, uh, he's just causing panic. He just wants to make money. Um, and this is all nonsense. Uh, power supply is safe. There won't be a blackout. And people like that, um, is the, the, you know, uh, it's very difficult to win them over as a partner uh, on the contrary, you have to be very careful, because if you then tell them how well prepared you are, then this is the first one uh, who will approach you when this uh, bad event happens. And that's the dilemma that we're faced with. On the one hand, <laughs> we have to 
build up a community, but we have to be very careful by saying, have you heard about a blackout or have you done anything? I don't know what, what, what to do. Uh, don't uh, tell them that we have uh, uh, stored supplies for three months. And particularly in inner cities and high-rise buildings, I uh, expect that in Berlin, central Berlin, on the first day, there will be lack of water. Why? Because people uh, say it's a power cut and keep using, using the toilet and use available water for the toilet. And when someone runs through the and, and you have to be prepared, and you can be prepared, you have to know what to do. And that is a problem. Well, I once did that uh, with uh, undergrads, um, and we did this in Hellersdorf, uh, one of the areas in Berlin, and they did interviews, and they said, look, in your area of the apartments uh, and they said would you give anybody your key in case you're going away and there uh, was one area where the people said yes yes I, I trust my neighbor that was the one where people actually shared uh, the green area uh, they didn't have just a uh, you know they, they had a little garden everybody was doing uh, a bit of gardening and that's how they met up so there were um, social relations that were formed. And once you have structures of that nature, which uh, of course in the country you have automatically, uh, that's where it's a normal thing. But also in the city, uh, you can do quite a bit to form such communities. And it would be great for the urban planners to keep that in mind as well. In Berlin, I know we do have the allotments uh, that was, in a way, something similar. People uh, did a bit of self-help. Um, you know, it was a way to to uh, have uh, some food supply, but it could also help in other ways. So I think that we need to go back to to the roots. Yes, uh, safe times are gone, but uh, most people are not aware of that. What we're talking about here has nothing to do with Ukraine. We have an energy crisis that's been lasting at least 10 years and we need to build new power stations in order to get into a situation of a secure energy supply that's affordable and that will uh, a gas uh, a gas uh, power station will take five years nuclear power 10 years uh, it would have to be done but it will only be done once the energy policy is changed and uh, and, and as long as we don't do that, uh, we have this, this situation. And if we have gone, uh, got through the winter, it, it won't be over. We still have a gap in uh, the gas supply. In the winter, we need more, but the problem will stay the same. And people are not aware of that. And that's why it would be so important that um, government would tell people and warn them about the risk of blackout we'll have uh, 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 will have power cuts anyway but that they uh, warn people and ask them to take precautions so that uh, they do what you mentioned and and start to f uh, form communities again cooperate 
Well, maybe it would be a great uh, campaign for everybody uh, to prepare that for uh, from the Ministry of uh, Protection Against Catastrophes. What do you think about that? Well, the same problem is I have uh, late last year I did a course at uh, the VK and tried to uh, to to raise the topic of nationwide blackout, and they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to know the crisis scenario always uh, power cuts uh, can uh, affect a, a, a region or a federal state or two but not more and all the precautions with regard to fuel supply for the emergency uh, service reliability communication etc all uh, and, and there are three uh, uh, um, factors that won't work when there is a blackout, and that's why it won't work. And then the authorities are part of uh, federal government, uh, and uh, the, 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 it, it, it doesn't provide the initial uh, impetus, uh, impetus for, for the population to go out and prepare themselves. And let me give you a, a figure for Austria, published last year. For the last 10 years, the blackout precautions have been postulated and uh, they communicated uh, via posters. In Austria, 40% of uh, the population is prepared. That means you can assume that here it will be 2, 3 or 4%. And as I said, what will happen in big cities when it happens is unimaginable. Uh, and the risk, the danger is huge. And uh, the risk, and that's why something has to be done by way of preparation. You cannot uh, ignore it. And what do you think is the possibility or the probability that this would be just faked, so that uh, they do that in a strategically opportune moment? Uh, well. That is one of my, how shall I put it, uh, it's my conviction that intentionally a country is destroyed intentionally. And I have the hope that uh, the exacerbation of the crisis happened too fast because the safety systems will uh, break down as well, I said. And I think government should worry about that when the once the safety systems break down they will no longer have control and that would create room for something new and that is the hope that i have and that and that it is done intentionally in order to strike terror into the population so that uh, they agree to everything you know uh, social credit system and uh, uh, cashless payment, and uh, I see that as a plan, but I think it's uh, everything is coming too fast, too early, and they're not really prepared. Well, then, uh, one of the most so one of the most important measures that we can take is that we try that we that to to strike fear into the po politicians. That's my hope, and uh, I think the operation of the three remaining uh, power, uh, nuclear power stations was extended, and that's an indicator for me, because the emergency reserve, 
uh, I think they didn't want to run the risk of the emergency reserve being shut, or shut down. My hope is that through the crisis that we will have the power cut, people will experience so much pain uh, that people will see that the people behind that are responsible for that and not Putin or something and perhaps uh, wonder whether the right people are in power. Okay, so if it is not the food supply disaster and that we can actually bring about that people help each other, then, um, you know, you wouldn't have this uh, constant flow of information of fake news that people in fact start to talk to each other and uh, talk about other things so for you know if they wanted to bring this about this would be a toxic situation wouldn't it so then we buy a volkswagen bus and then we have decentralized corona meetings because we wouldn't be able to go online either without uh, electricity there is I no corona the positive aspect is um i'm i'm uh, still called a conspiracy theorist and uh, causing panic but there are some people uh, who said you warned us two years ago and you turned out to be right and if these events were to happen then more people will recognize and perhaps start listening uh, properly and perhaps listening listen and be open to the arguments because the arguments against uh, solar power and windcraft are all available but people are, have such close minds that they don't ex uh, accept the arguments and don't listen just in a few minutes you uh, can explain to them that the energy uh, turnaround uh, will uh, will not work and you can also explain that the climate crisis is not real because we are at the end of a warming phase and you can also explain to them that co2 is not a drama but uh, for that people need to listen today people just believe they believe in politicians like mr harbeck and i think the chance is if people uh, uh, are faced with uh, with 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 disasters they may uh, start listening to others again Look, uh, listening is not enough. You also have to ask questions. Of course, that is possible anytime because our side has the arguments, but the other side doesn't have one to discuss uh, it because they don't have uh, the arguments. I would be willing to accept the challenge anytime. For example, uh, Professor Kempfert uh, runs around and says that uh, dark periods are not a problem. Uh, but uh, I don't understand why a three-month dark period is not a problem. So what do we do for the remaining uh, three months and uh, 15 days when we run out of reserves? Well, I got myself one of those solar things for hot water. It's fantastic. And the only problem is that in the wintertime when there is no sunshine, you know, I can't, uh, I can't do my dishes. I only have cold water, so I need some kind of substitute. Maybe I need a bottle of gas or something. But throughout the year, I use solar power 
That's fantastic. This heat pump, you know, don't 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 speak badly of solar power. You're talking about solar uh, thermal and not uh, photovoltaic. It's ineffective, and uh, there are data, and uh, they're talking about 10 watt per square meter uh, over the gear. You don't have enough room to uh, create generate your own electricity, uh, and on the whole world, there is not one country that uh, uses solar and wind only. Why not? Because it doesn't work, because there are dark periods uh, everywhere. And you can say that, but if we're, if we're talking about it and asking about it, a country to supply a country at an affordable price with the energy that is needed, then solar and windcraft are the worst. I think we can uh, summarize that we need a clever energy management. I think that's a great um, basis, uh, foundation to discuss the details. And you need perhaps other types of infrastructure. That's going to be quite a bit. It would be, it is now a t high time for this discussion to uh, start. And what Mr. Harbert says that we just need to promote renewables is a lie. When you look at the primary energy requirement, we have uh, around 16% renewables, but that includes uh, water and biomass. And that is enough to to cause a breakdown of our power supply. And uh, if that would double, our system would fail. Uh, the simple reason being that if you extend solar and wind power, then only the peaks will increase, but the troughs where they don't produce anything will stay the same. And that's why with renewables alone, you cannot do anything. And the more I uh, generate, the more waste electricity uh, I generate that needs to be exported. So I have uh, electricity that doesn't supply a reliable electricity supply. Well, I guess uh, the thing is storage. And of course, it's different uh, when you have mountains uh, and you can pump it up, or when you're in the flatland of the north. This is something that we can't discuss in detail now, but this is, of course, important. But you can sum it up, Mr. Vodak. There is no affordable storage uh, that uh, would have a justification uh, to uh, manage our energy supply. It may be different in 20 years, but today this is not the case, and therefore one alternative is uh, uh, nuclear power stations or coal power stations with CCS. Um, but if you want, unless you want to uh, cause a breakdown of our economy, we need affordable uh, energy because uh, otherwise local authorities will uh, will 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 be um, insolvent as well because uh, if they don't prepare who is paying for the income it will be small and medium sized businesses that was quite a bit uh, thank you very much for your input uh, very interesting um, your uh, factual information 
Well, I want people to Perhaps be able to... I may uh, say one thing on my website, uh, blackheart minus mind slash EKL, there is a minimal uh, list uh, of things you should purchase in order to prepare. There are hundreds of lists, but they're so huge that people say, oh, no, uh, uh, not for me. I generated a small one for everyone uh, to prepare. Uh, go shopping once or twice, and you have uh, collected everything that you need for to get through the first week. Okay, we'll put this link onto our homepage. I've uh, sent it to the... We'll put it on... I send it to you. That will be super to put again, on my web on the website. Again, thank you very much. Uh, it was great that uh, we were able to get this general overview. I think there are many points that we need to get into. Yeah, would be interesting, you know, to see how to prepare. That would be good for your viewers. We're ready for that. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. All right, we're getting to the next uh, guest, um, Hans Tolzin. Um, he is um, has been here before. I think last week we talked to him about general vaccination situation, the monkeypox, uh, something we talked about. And we talk about the virus as such. Um, we're talking about this. So for the current situation, the coronavirus and so on, um, this is not so important if there are viruses or not. Uh, if there are uh, viruses, uh, it doesn't seem to be a very dangerous virus at any rate. So it doesn't really matter and the situation does not change. But it's interesting to see um, under these aspects to see what is actually happening, what uh, um, do we have and how do we get this uh, criticism um, as to the hypothesis of the of, of the virus and last week we had the challenge by Samuel Eckerd who uh, asked uh, for a proof of the virus and uh, we had a tough discussion that was engendered by it. And I think it's good that we're having this uh, discussion. And uh, perhaps we will then um, get further information and then come to some conclusion, some definitive uh, finding. Mr. Totsin, are you with us now? Yeah, I'm right here. Hi. Let's take a look at this in detail. Yeah, there are 11 steps from the virus hypothesis to the proof of the virus. Let's take a look at that. With pleasure. This is basically my interim conclusion. Uh, you can also say these are the comprehensive postulates because uh, so far what has been said is not really comprehensive and it's also something that doesn't seem to be binding and uh, I, I look for orientation and I've never found it and now 
uh, as an outsider, so to speak. I wrote it up myself. I will share my screen if that's okay with you. There we go. There we go, yes. Can you see it? Yes, we can see it. So we have the 11 steps from the virus, hypothesis to the virus, the proof of the virus. Uh, this is basically the current situation. Let me see. Here we go. Uh, I I just made up a hypothetical illness, uh, an illness with completely new symptoms, the blue ear illness. In the first phase, <laughs> you you have uh, uh, ears that become bluish uh, for 95% of the people on one side, for some people only on 5% on the on either side, on, on both sides, and in 1% that it gets completely blue, like here in the image. And after 10 days, um, people start uh, losing their hearing at 50% uh, constantly. After 8 to 20 days, you have cognitive difficulties, 50% uh, permanently, and, and others, uh, the symptoms uh, are very similar to SSPE or MIBE. So this is this slow death, um, which um, people then face. So this is a construed example. So we we have an incidence and it comes uh, in partly in waves. Uh, it can be. Uh, uh, individually or in, in waves, so you can't really see what the source of the infection is. So, but the question, of course, is what could it be? Are we talking about uh, an infection or what is it? So the first step would be to do a differential diagnostics. And for most diseases, there are certain um, points of experience. Uh, well, if it were uh, pneumonia with fever, then we would have a lot of examples, but in this case, we don't. It's completely new. So what other causes could there be for this kind of spectrum of symptoms? And then you say, well, none, we don't have any. So the uh, symptoms are completely new. So symptomatics, if we had it, we, we, we would have this differential diagnosis. Uh, so, in other words, we cannot use or base this on the currently known differential diagnosis. So, what do we do? You have to do a holistic analysis. So, what does holistic analysis mean? Well, I take my five main causes. The first one would be an accident. Um, that's not the case. There is, uh, has been no accident, and you have, don't see any injuries. Um, is it possibly uh, poisoning or radiation or a lack of uh, 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 vital substances? The fourth would be psychosomatic. Um, immunological, psychological. Well, I can't think of the term right now. Yeah, some uh, uh, neurological, uh, neuro, 
psychoimmunological difficulties. Let's call it that. Okay, good. Whatever. Um, the, the mental areas. There are many, many different uh, fields here. And, of course, it could be a germ, so a virus. So, uh, one of them we would have to look at uh, if we have something that is completely new. And when it comes to number one, well, there isn't anything obvious to, uh, when it comes to uh, poisoning, radiation, could be. Well, maybe there is a new headset that is being sold, it's blue, and perhaps that is poisonous, nobody actually noticed that. And uh, and then it went, uh, you know, from the hearing into the brain, is a potential, po it's a poss possibility slightly construed, but if it were like that, um, you know, we only get to that doing a proper analysis. Uh, and maybe it's a new mobile phone, 5G, 6G, 7G, I don't know, uh, and give us some kind of uh, radiation. Again, it could be uh, Bluetooth uh, headsets, could be that too, yes, or any uh, kind of acoustic devices, or or people notice they all uh, had been to uh, the ear doctor and they all had a new type of medication and all of them received it because of that. So it may have been like a side effect. Um, again, we would only find out by doing a holistic amnesis. But we didn't find anything. So now we look at the third point, which would be the lack of vital substances like vitamins or minerals. I did a quick internet research, uh, vitamin B12, CDE, magnesium, um, lipid acid, zinc, full acid, glutathione. Uh, let's assume no hit. So we didn't find anything here. And then the next one would be psychosomatics. So what is happening in the social environment of the patient? What do they have in common? So are they all people who like staring at the moon? Or uh, do they go to a similar sauna? There is this concert uh, by these blue men, and the whole men are blue. I see these posters, and perhaps there are the people who uh, go to their concerts, uh, concerts, and as a result, they get blue ears. Yeah, if it were like that, if it were like that, and we only see, uh, look at that. Yeah, and we're only looking for a virus. Then we never, we, we would never find the Blumen group. Okay, let's assume we didn't find a thing. Then now we are starting for a possible pathogen. Uh, normally, people do this in parallel, but it cannot be that the moment you find one particle um, bacteria infected that you say then, okay, we stop uh, looking anywhere else. Not possible, because of course, in any kind of, um, in any kind of disease, uh, there are those that also get infected, but don't get sick, even with people who are completely positive. <clears throat> so, the third step would be the optical 
identification of the potential pathogen. So let's assume that indeed 80, in 80% of uh, those, they find particle-like viruses with a cockwheel um, shell. So then you could say there is quite a probability, but what happens with the other 20%? So we don't have a clear statement. So the question would be here again, are we talking about a correlation or a causality? Is it the same cause of the infection or is it only uh, because uh, they have a joint cause? So correlation and causality is something that virologists do not like to deal with. Because at that very moment where the virologist admits that it could be a correlation, not a cause, not a causality, but a correlation, then he would have to pass this case on to his colleagues. Then there is no publication, uh, you know, that the newspapers want to buy. It would be important to check the people whether uh, who, who have no blue ears, whether they have any pathogens in their ears. Yes. Absolutely. I'll come to that in a minute. Per perhaps we'll all have cogs in our ear, not just those with blue ears. Absolutely. Is there really a correlation? Or what is it? So there would be a possible alternative hypothesis, could be exosomes that uh, are being uh, ejected in a... Uh, in any infected texture, because as, a, as an attempt of the cells to uh, defend themselves, it could be uh, a, a means of fighting against the stress factor uh, that causes this, because organisms are always looking for solutions. If there are a lot of lymphocytes uh, found, it doesn't mean that the lymphocytes are the cause of disease. Exactly. That's a very good example. Yeah, it's a good comparison. Thank you. All right, so the next step would be to clean it up. So if I visit my aunt and I, I, I get to eat this stew, and after that I have a bad tummy ache and Tanta Anna would ask me what did cause this, then it's not enough to eat this again. So I have to separate the individual components, and I can look at that in detail and, and try out the different possibilities. So uh, this filtration is the absolute precondition to determine the biochemical composition of the may virus. May I make a short comment? When you purify, you want to separate the things that uh, are different if I understand it correctly. And for that, you need to define them first. You need to know what to separate in order to know how to do it. So we need to define something that we are looking for. And then we limit uh, the uh, range of what we can find. 
Right on, because if you think it's, it's a virus and you find different type of viruses, different sizes, then it could be, well, I'm not an expert on this, it could be that uh, in, a, in a centrifuge you could separate that, but that's something that the experts would have to do. It's, it's and just it's a question. Methodological, very important. When you want to separate something, you need uh, technical processes. Uh, you know, you can use a fork to pick out the sausage. You can take a filter to catch all sorts of things. So you can, you, or you can uh, float it or use a centrifuge or uh, heat it. And uh, every time you separate different things, and uh, that op uh, uh, is also true, a, a problem for microscopic uh, particles, you know, you need to know beforehand what you're looking for. That's right. So, so, so that I use the right uh, method to, to find what I'm looking for. For example, when I'm looking for prions, uh, this is a problem uh, because it's wrongly uh, folded uh, proteins if, if I kind of uh, put it uh, very uh, coarsely. So what am I looking for? How do I look for, for that? Well, that would be a technical question. Uh, I can't answer that. Uh, I guess it's up to the experts, but... Uh, I think it has to be absolutely purified because the steps that follow well, that on... that sounds good. Pure purification, you know, everything is clean, everything is in order, but that's not a purification. You don't know what you're purifying from what. Are you, uh, you know, purifying the peas from the sausages or vice versa? Well, if this uh, purification would be technically impossible, then uh, the PCR test, of course, couldn't be done for one particular virus. That would be the logical conclusion. It isn't. It's just a molecular sequence that they're finding, not the entire virus. You just find certain reactions at a molecular uh, level that suddenly uh, that, 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 that are found. Fair enough. Uh, I'm sure that's an area that still needs to be investigated uh, further. But I, I just wanted to continue with the first and the eleventh step. And let's see. So let's see. We let's assume we had a liquid, and uh, we check it uh, in our electronic microscope, and we see certain particles that look exactly like that, and uh, we see uh, certain indications, clear indications. Let's assume it were like that. Yes. So the absolute uh, precondition would be, that would be the precondition for a re reliable viral test. Now, assuming that it's a piece uh, that 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 may be, uh, uh, that we have to take everything out and we left with a piece. And, and we have uh, cleaned them, and and you can do that with every any pea soup again. You know it's reproducible, and these are clearly then peas. Right. I see. May I continue? <laughs> yes. Yes. Do please do. No. No. Excuse me uh, for interrupting you, but I think it's important that. There are so many uh, variations that you uh, take them into account when you uh, present the steps. Absolutely. I think this is where we have the biggest problem, in fact. Mm. So, we do purification versus virus isolation. 
Isolation comes from isolare in, in Italian, which means to separate. Uh, actually, it means literally, it means to make an island. Insula is the Latin word for island. And this is what uh, the German dictionary tells me. Wikipedia tells me this. I mean, Wikipedia can trust because um, they tell you uh, to do. They 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 uh, give you the opinion that the industrial complex would like you to have. So virus isolation means that you have the targeted enhancement of viruses from biological test sets. So in other words, infectious material. And they can be enhanced in cell cultures, embryonized uh, chicken eggs, or uh, with specific um, methods. And virus isolation is either used as a classical method to discover new viruses or as a method to prove that uh, there is a virus that is known within the framework of virus diagnostics. And virus isolation is the direct proof of pathogen. And it means it is the collection of uh, the analysis, possibly sometimes also purification, and a determination of the systematics or other characteristics like tropism, infectionality, and pathogenity. So whatever is optional and is difficult is something that the industry doesn't want to do. That's my experience, because it costs money. So, medically, historically, from a medical history point of view, let's say I have a cough and uh, I, have, uh, I have pneumonia and they take, they, they, they take a blood sample. And you, Dr. Voda, get this blood, blood sample injected into your body and you have the same symptoms then. The virologist would say he has isolated a virus. And isolation means that it uh, was not possible to um, have a culture of a, of, of a bacterium. So in other words, my blood sample has to suffice. So what I don't like about any of this is the fact that they use the word virus isolation without defining what that actually means. And I feel that even uh, the those that are critics uh, of uh, the virus hypothesis make these mistakes because when they speak of uh, uh, virus isolation, he talks about purification. But if the virologist uses it, he says that by passing patient's material into another person or into an animal or into a chicken neck or cell culture, that then uh, he can um, uh, trigger a, a certain uh, demise of the cells and that means that he found a new virus. And I have something that will question this approach. So if you 
in Wikipedia it says uh, uh, one can use that, uh, the viruses as a host, so it can be used in isolated virus to um, use it as a Henle-Koch postulate. Uh, that, of course, is not something that is necessarily happening, but it could happen. So, I see that as something extremely problematic because there is no binding procedure to prove the existence of a virus. Either that or there is one that I personally haven't discovered yet. So the fifth step would be to, let's say you have this completely purified virus or particle, I should say, the next step would be to determine the biochemical um, idiosyncrasies of what you have there in your sample. So the uh, shell proteins, the genetic sequences, how they are made up. And the problem, of course, is that any, you have to be very, very clean because any kind of imperfection can lead to uh, fatal falsification. We saw that with PCR. If there's only one genetic molecule from the environmental atmosphere gets into the tube and we have 45 uh, cycles, then of course uh, the end uh, means that the result is positive instead of negative. So the step number six would be to determine uh, individual characteristics. So you need to determine unique, unique qualities uh, that make it distinct from any other uh, virus. So the shell proteins uh, you need to How is it made up so that uh, we can find uh, the opposite bit? And you need this for the PCR test. Many uh, further tests uh, to uh, be able to exclude the possibility that you have been uh, unclean in your work. Yeah, of course, that's the question of the quality of the test uh, uh, that comes into play here. You can have double reactions of different kind of structures to this uh, test so that it's not as specific anymore as you assumed. One would have to know that. Yeah, absolutely, that would be very important because it is... Uh, um, this may determine, you know, what the life of a person means, uh, depending on the outcome of this test. We've seen that with Corona, you know, all of a sudden you lose your job just because you were positive and you didn't want to have uh, your... Well, the test was not the cause, but the misinterpretation of the test results was. Right. Uh, step number seven. So let's just assume we have clearly identifiable characteristics to which we can use this uh, viral test. And then, of course, you have to calibrate the lab tests. And, you know, a BCR test, 
or uh, antigen test or anything else that is um, reliable for clear shell proteins. So, if any bits of steps one to six were not absolutely clean, then uh, these lab tests will not have any meaning. <coughs> because if the anamnes anamnesia hasn't been done properly, or you haven't really looked at it, uh, then, uh, of course, the lab test will uh, have no meaning at all. And step number eight would be to actually um, fulfill the first Koch postulate. Uh, so uh, there you check if this possible or alleged pathogen uh, occurs in sick people and not in healthy people, or the other way around. But what? But what is if there is a quiet? Then they will also be found in healthy people. Yeah, then we have a problem. Then we would have to find out why is it that uh, those that are infected, who have no symptoms at all, for example, I never had measles. Uh, yeah. So it does make sense then. And virologists simply ignore this. So you can say that the Koch postulate is not suitable. Right. Okay. And then the next question is, so the PCR test and the antigen test, are they coordinated amongst each other? Because if you have two um, results positive, can you actually compare them? You know, the threshold value that the uh, color reaction kicks in, uh, the number of uh, doublings, have some do it at 20, but in another county they take 35, for example. That's important too, because if not, you cannot really compare the statements. So, if you can find it in healthy individuals, the infection can only be a co-factor. I'm not, I'm not, I, I need to interject here. Uh, think of the quiet. Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> so if you don't have any symptoms, the cofactor. Uh, it just means that some people, uh, get, sick that some people will get sick and others won't. Yeah, and then the question is, how do you uh, define antibody? So, if that means that you have actually gone through... That sounds an like a disease. The Koch postulate uh, one that the disease is caused, blue ears. Yeah, if I don't have any blue ears, then I have to continue looking. Yeah, so if I don't have any clear statement here, then I have to go back to step two, uh, our anamnesis, um, and see what has occurred. And if these particles cannot be found in those who are ill, again, I have to go back to step number two, because a number of those who uh, sick do not have that virus. So we need a clear correlation. 
If not, it doesn't make any sense. I, I, I need to... The first right, uh, red point is that if uh, found in uh, healthy people, then the infection is a cofactor. That is not true, uh, because the infection, the infection with this pathogen can lead to a disease in some people and uh, in others it doesn't. Yeah, what happens to those where it does not well, lead to Then it's also found in healthy people. Yes. So with measles, it's like that. You 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 have that that people get sick without any any symptoms with polio too. So something must be wrong here. So there must be other causes in that case. Couldn't it be? Let me be provocative. Um, could it not be that we we're living with these beasts? We are living together, all sorts of things that is crawling around inside of us uh, and that you meet in public trans on tran public transport and, and, and some get sick and some don't. So that may depend on how uh, the immune system, what the immune system looks like. If someone goes up on a mountain and breaks down after 500 meters and the others doesn't, then it has to do with their physical fitness. And the same may uh, uh, apply to the fitness of the immune system, whether they get sick or not. That's my hypothesis. So it's not due to the pathogen, but uh, whether we get sick or not, but it has to do with, the fa with how fit we are. So we would have to uh, focus on the cellular immune system, yeah. In the mucous tissue, we have some pathogens that 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 don't cause cellular immune immunity. They are already um, defeated on the mucous tissue. There are all right. sorts of uh, mechanisms that the body has. Well, I was told by a doctor once, or he wrote. The macrophages. What did he say? The macrophagi are the what? The waste disposal system. Yeah, well, they are the mortal enemy of vaccination. Because when they are healthy, I don't need any 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 vaccination. I don't know whether it's as simple as that. Well, if I make sure that my cellular immune system is fit, <laughs> then, uh, of course, I there can is, take more than there in other situations. More. The cellular immune system, for example, can uh, uh, cause a lot of uh, problems when I'm allergic, for example, when it's overfit and I suffer from it and get sick. Yeah, interesting. I mean, the interesting bit is that measles, for example, uh, apparently calm down the cellular immune system because those who have gone through measles in a natural fashion uh, have a lower allergy rate and a lower cancer rate. Uh-huh. Well, well, there is this the thing about uh, the worm diseases uh, in children that uh, make sure that they don't get autoimmune diseases in later life. That is a, a theater that parasitologists and immunologists have developed that may, that then leads that uh, 
parasite eggs where worm eggs were introduced to people to uh, change their immune system. But these are all theories and sometimes you can see something uh, clinically that uh, people benefit, but uh, to, uh, it's, it's still difficult to understand and generalize about it. Well, the point I'm trying to get to is this. I said it last time. We don't have clear-cut answers to our questions. We have to go back into research and be open for any kind of result. Well, I think, well, that's great about homeopathy that uh, history is taken, which is excellent. Uh, that they do an extensive history, and if on top of that uh, comes the knowledge of there being a differential diagnosis possible, all the things that you mentioned that may be uh, uh, that may be true, it's worth a lot. And even if you find that uh, you don't know exactly where the disease comes from, it's worth something. It's better than pretending that you know or um, being f satisfied with something and uh, base a diagnosis on some lab results, which is something that happens too often, you know, uh, one lab uh, uh, result is not in order and then that is treated. That uh, mechanism unfortunately uh, happens too often and is uh, rewarded by our DRG system and other reward systems and nonsense and that happens a lot. Yeah, they would have to radically change uh, the factoring system of uh, the health plans. We do that together, won't we? All right, C can I move on to the next step? Thank you. All right, step number nine. So we fulfill the second Koch postulate. So the first one means that um, it uh, that it can multiply. So I'm not the expert here. Uh, so the reproducibility is there, but uh, the result has to be identical with the initial product. And for that, you need negative controls with viruses that seem to be harmless and uh, identical cell cultures and an identical procedure. So these negative controls are important. Um, and if you do that as a blind study, that would be even better. Because that way, Frankie uh, asked that last time, but uh, is it, does it matter if you do it as a blind study, if you have them in uh, you know, separate rooms and put it uh, into these incubators or not. Uh, step number 10, that you have an uh, attempt of infection. Um, so you do it with different types of animals, uh, different types of animals, different species, because uh, species react differently. Uh, to these viral attacks and to these stresses. And then uh, the natural way of passing the pathogen has to be has to be copied. Uh, if you assume that it's done through the air, then uh, of course in your attempt you have to do it in the same fashion. 
So you cannot then uh, uh, inject it because uh, you have to use the same transmission path. Uh, yeah, I then need to use headsets for the exposition. Because that little devils are uh, inside of the headsets and that we find that they're also in the red ones. Yeah, but only if the viruses were the causes and the color of the headsets. But it could be uh, the uh, upholstery or the foam. Yes, but once we found that out, if we found found out that there is another cause. No, I mean whether uh, the, the, the viruses could be in there. But only when they're damp. Only when they're damp, they will keep long enough. Well, if it were like that, we would only get to that finding if <coughs> we were analyzing that it's fun, isn't with it? an open mind. Very well. I already did this, right? Right. So the control group uh, gets another virus, which is, has identical cell, uh, cellular cultures and has been um, reproduced. Uh, double blind is always better, triple blind even more, but that's of course a lot of trouble. And at the very end, you need um, a human test with people who are completely healthy, and of course it has to be voluntary, then we have an ethical dilemma. But without a limited trial on people, um, uh, you would pass this uh, uh, proof of virus to the entire population. So, and then the very last step, number 11, is uh, reproducibility. reproducibility. Um, uh, you have to do it in a transparent fashion at the documentation so that you can repeat the trial um, and the uh, proof of the virus has to be repeatable, has to be repeated. If I were in charge of the WHO, I would say at least in three different countries you must have got to get to the same finding and everything has to be identical. Um, uh, if you assume that there is a, a pathogen virus. And in case you cannot reproduce it, then you will have to go back to step number two, the holistic medical history. These were my 11 steps. Great. Super. Sorry, can I ask a question? I just want to know, now that uh, what we have uh, seen from Frankie last week, uh, would you say that he is on the same tracks, or is that completely different, or has he asked wrong questions, the wrong questions? Well, if somebody says there is a COVID-19 virus, then I would like to see that documented from step one to step 11. But, but we have to watch it here now. COVID-19 virus, I don't say that it exists. This is what played uh, a role in Rwanda, and uh, we don't know that. It may well be that a lab-constructed or computer-constructed, uh, but, but that wasn't uh, viable in nature and uh, was not uh, able to spread. 
and proliferate. It may well be that they um, put something together. I don't know. Well, well, I can't comment on that. But that that there is a COVID-19 virus means that the, the disease has to exist. Well, they had a couple of people who were sick. Yes, but yeah, yeah. yeah somebody come up, came yes, up with exactly. the idea called the Corona sequence. That means that has nothing to do with the question whether a certain virus. We don't know. We don't know what virus to look for to start with. You know, the the COVID nineteen uh, thing is uh, tests were done, and those tests uh, were done again and again. And they were positive in all sorts of uh, people and also totally healthy people. And they said, uh, this must have been the virus, that this is nonsense, that the PCR test is completely uh, unsuitable to prove uh, anything between causality and uh, infection is, is, is not uh, disputed. Um, someone is uh, claiming here that there are no viruses. This is not something, this is a very complicated question. You have to first define, correct, that is that is a very extremely complicated topic. I would refuse to discuss it at that level. Yes, I'm completely in agreement with you. If somebody says there are no viruses, then I have to define what is a virus. If I take at the exosome particles that are like viruses, they exist. Perhaps there's an intermediate step between the two even. We know that these endoviruses, the retroviruses that we have in the body that uh, that are part of our human uh, 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 genome, and there are many people who have uh, proven how uh, humankind has developed, and all these steps, uh, you know, something something happened genetically. And when you say, uh, I tried to 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 explain that on my homepage, uh, many say that these small information particles that are passed on between living things may uh, cause these uh, living th uh, things to be to change and that information is sometimes uh, hulled sometimes it's spiked it look they look different and what the genetic uh, uh, information that's passed on in the in the in the body they are the endosomes or exosomes that you mentioned so what are we talking about we I would be satisfied if we talk about uh, molecular information is exchanged uh, in living within living systems and how we call them endosomes and exosomes viruses or whatever is uh, the, is a secondary for the information is what counts and information is only information when something is received which means if just a molecule happens to pass by and nothing happens, this is not information. Information is a difference. Is a difference that makes a difference. Well, genetic sequences are basically 
Examples for proteins. Everything is made of proteins, enzymes, uh, fundamental materials, cell structures. Everything is proteins. So if the body gets into stress and I don't know how the body does it, right? But maybe you need a special enzyme that the body can produce. So with measles, after two weeks, uh, I, I'm told by some parents that the children have grown two sizes. It's incredible what the body is doing in that time. So cognitive problems can be resolved, uh, linguistic problems are resolved. They've learned something uh, at a molecular level. And what some studies have shown is antibodies from other infectious diseases cannot be shown anymore. But there are learning processes that uh, people die from, you know. And if the information leads to uh, people uh, uh, reacting incorrectly. I mean, allergies are, are information, allergens uh, cause f uh, false alarms, and that ca causes people uh, to die. This is molecular information. Well, if I haven't eaten anything for three weeks and then get an infection, I have fewer chances of survival than somebody who, who is well fed, obviously. And then there are, of course, also mental factors. So it's not only the virus, if, in fact, it is a virus. So the question that is, uh, it's a bit pragmatic how to call them. Uh, communication should serve to understand each other and to use the same, talk about the same thing. So you have to agree to what you understand by the virus and what I understand uh, by the virus. And I'm uh, quite open. Uh, to me, it's uh, a, a type of molecular communication vehicle. And some are passed on inside of the body. Others are passed on from uh, to another body. Exosomes, when they're on the mucous tissue, they can contain information. For example, now uh, they can uh, use and they pass on uh, on the uh, through the mucous tissue, and we call that shedding, not infection. So there are so many ways of uh, of how uh, pa how the body can pass and package uh, the information and pass it on, and uh, how animals uh, can pass it in. For example, if uh, an, 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 an ass uh, screams, we don't understand. Uh, we don't understand a dog barking. They pass on information we can't well, The donkey may know what he and means when he yells, yeah, maybe he gets blue ears, ears. But um, the information, in, even in biology, there is information which, which is not understood. And, and if they're not understood or perceived, then it's not information. Then it's an exposition. But to be, be an information, you need a change that leads to a change. It's a difference that makes a difference. And these maxims, mechanisms of action occur uh, very often in the body and whether and also happens at a molecular level whether it's reproducible that's another question I know information from for example from I can get information from a mobile uh, 
which I would not be able to receive with my uh, radio, even though it could be the same information. So, it's a difficult topic, and we've only just touched upon it. I agree with you 100%. If we cannot really clarify the terminology, uh, then we won't get to a result, because uh, those that are open and virologists and uh, critics will not get on common ground if they do not define it. I just think there are those uh, dogmatic people who, instead of uh, asking, um, scold each other, sh sh shitstorms, etc. This is a level at which these uh, shitstorms uh, take place. I have no time for that. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not taking part in those. Any but questions? Uh, isn't isn't the criticism that uh, people say the virus is not uh, the pathogen or whatever uh, they see or measure, but it's the uh, um, rejection product of the process that's happening? For example, the molecular information and what we're seeing is not is not the causality is uh, questioned, isn't it? There is another. Uh, transmission process, and then we can measure uh, in the body or in the uh, secretion. We can measure the 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 element that is uh, then uh, there is the ability uh, of cells to replicate uh, structures. Uh, the a cell make, can make copies of certain information and pass it on, and. Um, they can do that with viruses, but they can also uh, do that with exosomes. Um, cells divide even, and they pass on the information, make copies when they divide. That's a natural process. Well, one aspect is that uh, these genetic sequences that supposedly are, are so terrible, where do they actually come from? Well, at the end of the day, they come from cells from the body. It's not some aliens who, who got them to us. Yes, that's true. So the question is, why does a cell, uh, you know, start to to have virus-type particles? Uh, think of colonial times when the Spaniards, Sp Spain invaded South America and had horses, etc., and uh, looked completely different from indigenous people. And then there was obviously immunological processes at a social level. They fought. Uh, they didn't know each other. And uh, one wanted something, and the others just wanted to stay as they were. So we have these processes where you don't know each other, where they don't came to an agreement or a coexistence, um, how uh, the, the way we have it with many molecular information throughout our history. We've got to know so many viruses, and they're not harmful. You can live with them. They're even part of our, uh, of, of us, and, and these processes happen all the time, and they're still happening, and they will continue to happen. True, but it could be that our immune system always uh, starts to read, you know, what yes, is the genetic yes. information coming and, in. And the dendritic uh, cells are always involved and are reporting and doing. So they use the good ones, they throw out the bad ones. And they say, alarm, alarm, or they say, oh, I know this one, it's okay. 
Great, we can continue Good. thinking about that. Oh, there is one final aspect as to the corona research, but I think this is enough for today. I think this suffices, and thank you very much. We agree that the Wuhan viruses were never relevant. What we've observed is the test results that uh, had a global spread and led to uh, misinterpretation and uh, uh, respiratory tract uh, uh, diseases uh, continue to exist that are caused by small particles that we cause viruses. Well, what I think viruses. I have uh, observed is that these top security um, labs, uh, you know, like they did on the island of Rügen uh, to do research on the Asian uh, bird flu. But, uh, you know, in the area of those high security labs, they take samples from that area and analyze them. And where you, you know, if you're looking yes. for a lot, you find a lot. So, and in Germany, it started back uh, 2005 on the island of Rügen. And the same may be occurring for... Yes, correct. I, I like that comparison. There was a guy at the Bernard Rock Institute who uh, did a study uh, as to the intestinal virus. And I suppose that he was the one who uh, started to do this exotic EHEC test. That's different. Uh, with regard to EHEC, I am of the firm opinion that on the vegetable market, uh, these EHEC uh, pathogens were sprayed with the water. Someone uh, wanted to uh, do an exposition trial, and there were a lot of interested parties. I cannot imagine I, I reported it to the, to the, uh, to, to the health authorities in uh, Hamburg, and uh, I, uh, I suggested that they should take the prosecutor with them when they this type of spread and the source of a vegetable market, wholesale vegetable market, and various uh, types of vegetables. When we know, uh, they always spray water on the vegetables to keep it fresh on the wholesale markets. And if you put EHEC into that, then you have, then you have the optimal situation that would lead to what we saw at the time. I cannot prove it, but as uh, as someone who, uh, who, who uh, for me, this would be the most plausible explanation for someone like a medical uh, detective. It would be yeah, something for the, the prosecutor. Case for the yes. No, they, 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 they made a business trip to Morocco because there, this is where the seed originated, and obviously they didn't find anything. There wasn't anything. Where this. What was it again? Sprouts. Sprouts, yes. Some kind of sprouts. Well, when it comes to Wuhan, I have my own conspiracy theory to finish this off. As a state prosecutor, you have to be a conspiracy theorist, otherwise you're not doing your duty. Well, the interesting bit is that, uh, Fauci, this game of function research 
he made that a geopolitical enemy because it's basically a research on biological weapons. So that's basically treason what he did. But he was working together with the chief from the CDC in China. Who knows? Who knows? But it could be, it could be that uh, it was intended because China uh, supposedly, I don't really trust what they're saying, but supposedly they are very um, sensitive when it comes to such outbreaks. And that, of course, is in the interest of the geopolitical enemies. And perhaps all of this has been planned. You know, why the hell did Fauci now, go to we're China? We're talking about a completely different story here, and there is a lot. Uh, so that can be, there's a lot of differential diagnostics uh, possible here. Okay, I got it. Well, I'm so glad that uh, we were able to talk about that too, and we see what happens in our further discussion. I hope. I hope we have uh, initiated a lot of discussions that will uh, now uh, take place. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Tolson, to give us uh, an insight into these new aspects. Thank you. Thank you from me as well. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, and thank you very much for my invitation. Rights attorney Greg Glazer. Are you with us? Yes, hello. Hello, good to see you. Well, uh, I'm a vaccine rights lawyer in California, and my family roots are from Europe. Um, we, uh, my dad and grandpa are from Germany. Uh, that, that's our family line. And when my grandpa moved to Ohio, he built his own house. And my dad was very bright uh, in high school. He spoke German. And he uh, decided to go to Cornell University and study mathematics and then went to Stanford and got his PhD in mathematics, became a professor, and then later worked for the United States government. And I am very interested in science and the subject of vaccination. And that's what I will be speaking about today. Great. Okay, so be curious what you have to say. Yes. Well, first I represent doctors. Uh, I am the general counsel for a physician's organization called Physicians for Informed Consent. And we help educate the public on infectious diseases and vaccines by providing data, uh, data that is found on PubMed and data that is found in United States government records. My focus is providing very credible information to the public and to courts. So I have worked on a study, a vaccinated versus unvaccinated study, and I would like to share the results of our study today. Um, my group, which is called the control group, mm -hmm. submitted this evidence in court to show that vaccination is dangerous. And when I say vaccination, I mean all vaccines. The measles vaccine, chickenpox vaccine, all vaccines are unavoidably unsafe according to law. 
that is their designation. And so when we began our study, that was our null hypothesis, that vaccination is dangerous. Vaccination is unavoidably unsafe. And what our study set out to measure was how dangerous, what is the exact number of injuries caused by vaccines. So what I will do is share my screen to show how our group calculated that number. Okay. So I think right now you can see my screen with a chart. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. This chart shows the vaccinated population in America, their health condition, and compares it to the unvaccinated survey group in America. The orange represents the United States population using United States government data. 60% of all adults in America have one or more chronic illnesses. A chronic illness for example, is diabetes, heart disease, cancer, any condition that makes life really hard. That means that more than half of all adult Americans suffer one or more of these very difficult lifelong conditions. But our group surveyed a large number of unvaccinated Americans and we found that percentage-wise, that group only suffers approximately 5 to 6% um, over their whole life of chronic illnesses, meaning that 95% of unvaccinated adults are perfectly healthy. They may get an infection from time to time, but they rebound and heal from that infection very quickly. So this means that the unvaccinated are 10 times healthier than the vaccinated in terms of this metric called chronic illness. And the numbers become even more dramatic when we look at multiple chronic conditions. As you can see, 42% of Americans have two or more chronic conditions. For example, an adult who has diabetes and cancer. But in the unvaccinated group, we found less than 1% of any adults who have more than one condition. And when you get to five chronic conditions, it's 12% of American adults have five or more health conditions. That basically means they're dying um, compared to 0% in the unvaccinated group. Our experts include medical doctors, PhDs, top professionals. Our medical experts reviewed all of our data and our methods and confirmed that we have above 99% confidence in these results for multiple reasons. And I will show, for example, one of our expert declarations that explains the confidence that we have, the strength of our study, and also potential weaknesses in the study as well. This is very important to highlight because I want to emphasize that we are going out of our way. We are trying very hard to be reasonable and objective in presenting this information so that it will be recognized by courts of law. And I will also show another example of 
our very important evidence. This is a statistics report provided by our expert statistician. And it goes into detail using two different uh, statistical methods to confirm that we are above 99% confident in these results. Do you, may I have a question? Yes. Uh, did you, did you standardize the whole thing for age? Did you match the whole thing for age groups? Yes. Or are there, or did you, is it, is it possible, you know, if you have only one chronic condition, there is, and if you get older, you get more chronic conditions. And so this depends a lot on, on the age, whether you have chronic diseases or not. So did you standardize this for sex and for age? Yes, we standardized for both sex and age. Mm -hmm. um, for example, here is our graph relating to children. And we also have a report that mm -hmm. stratifies every single age. So age oh, yeah, one, right. age two, for example. Okay, this is and important, yeah. This is important uh, because, Dr. Wodard, um, it follows the same methodology utilized by the United States Census to set national policy in the United States. Okay. For example, uh, the United States Census will telephone individuals at their homes and ask them about their health conditions. They ask, what has your doctor diagnosed you with? Do you have diabetes, et cetera? This is the standard method for the United States Census to determine the uh, National Children's Health Survey um, and to set national policy. So our group used the same method where we invited the patient or the parent to submit a survey form where they outline their medical diagnoses, any conditions that they have, and then tell us how confident they are in their results. On a scale of zero to 10, yeah. how confident are you with 10 being the highest? Yes, this, so, this, is, this is very interesting because what you are measuring is a, a variant, which is the only variant you are, dis, you are distinguishing is Got vaccine, got no, got injection, got no injection. This is the what what you what you uh, try to to separate, and this is, is the, correct. The, the others should be all the same. The other variants should all be the same. Only this distinguishing uh, factor should be different. Got the vaccine, didn't get the vaccine. Yeah, that is correct. Um, and this and is when you when you do when you do that when you do that. People. Sorry, when you when you distinguish like that, it would be very interesting to to uh, to find some reasons why. Has it to do with the with the professionality, with the intellectual status, or with it? With what factors are important? Did you make some research for that too? Yes, um, uh, we considered whether there might be confounding factors such as the diet or the genetics of the individuals, mm -hmm. and for our pilot survey, we decided to invite all unvaccinated people, and we did not limit to any location. For example, we did not study only the Amish people in Pennsylvania, but rather we opened the survey to all people from everywhere. These are the same types of people who go to normal supermarkets, they go to normal schools, they live among the vaccinated. And so that means that they tend to be eating the same foods, they're subject to the same amount of exposure to Wi-Fi, and they're just in the general genetic pool. Um, in order to 
test whether genetics are a major confounding factor, um, one would need to do a sibling study where we include the siblings because um, if you have a vaccinated sibling and an unvaccinated sibling, well, they have the same genetics, they live in the same household. And so by aggregating that data, one can find whether genetics is a confounding factor. But this is what we do know. Um, we do know that there is no study on PubMed that has ever been published that would suggest that um, somebody has a uh, tenfold risk of getting a chronic disease based on their diet um, or a exponential greater risk of heart disease or diabetes based on their genetics or diet. Um, the likelihood that this could just be by accident, um, the likelihood is so small that it reaches the sort of ridiculous numbers that one would see studying elementary particles at CERN. Um, there's clearly a safety signal here. There's clearly something to look at. Um, and those confounding factors are likely to be in the small percentage range. You know, you might find somewhere between 10 or 20 percent. If you improve your diet, you can improve your life, you, you know, your life and so forth. But these these numbers are too staggering to dismiss. And so we decided uh, our group of experts decided that we wanted to also compare the national data on the vaccine schedule over time. That's this red line. As you can see, this is the 1980s. That's my generation, where children were receiving about 10 vaccines. And then over time, the number grew to closer to 80 vaccines. So for example, the MMR vaccine, that's three vaccines in one. That's why we get to 80. And over time, this number increases. And we also are noticing that chronic illness is increasing. So our PhD did a Pearson correlation coefficient calculation to find whether the slope of this red line matches the slope of this orange line. And what he found is that the match in slopes is a 0.99, uh, very high correlation. This is similar to if your doorbell rings, you know that someone is at the door. There's a 0.99 chance someone is at the door. It's possible that an acorn hit the door bell, but probably not. Probably it's someone at the door. That's the same thing as saying there's probably a connection, a serious correlation between the increase in the number of vaccines and the increase in chronic illness in society. And we did a similar Pearson correlation coefficient for other things. This is autism. Autism has a 0.91 correlation, which is again, a very high correlation. So as the number of vaccines increase, so also the autism rate in society. All of these things that we looked at match these, that's called a Pearson correlation coefficient. Naturally, one would think that vaccines would have a benefit to society, and we should calculate that benefit. So our group also did that. We calculated the benefit of vaccination in society. To do that, we used government data. This is going to be a recurring theme that I will be discussing, that we want to present the most credible information. If we have government data, we want to start and use the government data. So here we prepared, our expert prepared, the most comprehensive mathematics report 
that I have ever seen in history on the risk of vaccination compared to the risk of the disease in question. This is a 450 page report where our expert mathematician goes into detail on exactly what is the risk of every disease on the CDC schedule and what is the risk of the vaccine. And we look at the exact uptake rate of vaccination in children. We look at the exact waning rate. We calculated the waning rate in vaccination. You know, like based, that means how soon do vaccines wear off so that you don't have that protection anymore? And then we use VAERS data to calculate the number of injuries that people are reporting. Um, part of that is underreported because VAERS is a passive surveillance system. But, and, and then also some of it is misreporting, meaning that someone will report a condition that is not actually linked to the vaccine. So those two factors are, are um, addressed within this report. And the conclusion of the report is here where we find that for every single disease on the CDC schedule, the risk of vaccination is exponentially larger than the risk of the disease in question. For example, almost nobody gets diphtheria or polio or dies from these diseases today. And so the risk of being unvaccinated in society is virtually zero. And this matches our historical data graphs. These are original graphs that we prepared utilizing United States government data. And we found that for every single disease on the CDC schedule, the mortality associated with that disease declined to zero before the vaccine was introduced or was widely accepted. For example, this is measles disease mortality in the 20th century. And as you can see, measles mortality, approximately 13 people for, out of every 100,000 died from measles. Uh, if, if somebody got measles, they had a 13 out of 100,000 chance of dying at the turn of the century. That's because in 1900, they did not know about vitamin A. They did not have good plumbing. There was crowding in cities. They did not have refrigeration. Uh, I'm talking, speaking on a societal level. But over time, as engineers fixed these issues, by the 1940s, people had refrigerators. People were washing their hands and using good hygiene. There was decreased crowding in cities. Engineers fixed society. It was beautiful. And in the 1940s, people were not dying from measles. Also, doctors were helping because they knew about vitamin A. And then in 1963, the measles vaccine is introduced. But as you can see, the problem was already solved 20 years earlier. And so the vaccine comes along and takes the credit for solving the measles problem. Now, with that said, the vaccine did reduce the number of measles cases. We found the same issue for diphtheria. As you can see, mortality comes down to zero before the vaccine is even introduced. This is whooping cough. Here's polio. Polio is a little more difficult to do because it almost looks like the vaccine worked. But when you look at the uptake rate, as you can see, uptake rate didn't even approach 50%. By the time that it even got halfway through, it had already reached zero um, mortality. Chickenpox is probably the most complicated one to deal with. Um, because 
Once again, we have to look at what the trend was. As you can see, the trend is people figuring out how to diagnose chickenpox, how to treat chickenpox. Um, and then once people figure out how to deal with chickenpox, then you see that disease mortality approaches zero. But it looks like the vaccine worked because when you see it introduced right here, then you have this big drop in chickenpox uh, mortality. But once you plot the line for vaccine uptake, how many people are getting the vaccine, you can see that the trend was already approaching zero. Our mathematicians calculated these numbers using two different trend lines. One is a linear and the other is exponential. As you can see, it was already going toward zero. This is a common theme in society. Once we figure out how to deal with the disease and treat the disease, the disease mortality approaches zero. Um, Dr. Wodog, you have done a good job explaining this for COVID-19. Once people realized how to treat it, it very quickly resolved itself. As we can see here for other diseases for which there is no vaccine, or alternatively, there's no vaccine in common usage, such as tuberculosis, it follows the exact same trend line. Um, disease mortality decreases to virtually zero, even though there's no vaccine. Again, this is because doctors and engineers solve the problem without vaccines. Typhoid fever, tuberculosis, scarlet fever, malaria. I'm just going through diseases, but as you can see, the trend is obvious. So here's the net result. In the early 1900s, people were dying of things like pneumonia, tuberculosis. But today, it's heart disease, cancer, lung disease, and things like that, diabetes. So we have traded infectious disease for chronic disease, which goes back to my graph. Chronic disease is the major problem plaguing Americans today and also people throughout the world today. And our court documents that we have introduced are intended to very credibly make this presentation to a judge who is willing to hear it. For example, um, one of the things that we do to emphasize our null hypothesis that vaccines are dangerous is we prepared a list of exhibits. Uh, this is approximately 5,000 pages of top vetted scientific documents that show the risk of vaccination using all authoritative sources from the United States government like CDC and also um, peer-reviewed publications on PubMed. And these include admissions from government and from top scientists uh, recognizing that vaccines contain dangerous ingredients such as neurotoxins. Um, to condense this information, because it's very dense, there are not many people who want to read 5,000 pages of scientific materials, um, we made what's called demonstrative evidence. Uh, this is when a lawyer presents a nice graph or um, poster board in court for the jury to understand. So we made these nice uh, poster boards to explain what our data shows. Again, this is our null hypothesis that vaccination is unavoidably unsafe. Um, and that is a classification under law in America. Uh, other products that are also classified as unavoidably unsafe are chainsaws, dynamite. You know that even if you try to use them safely, they are going to injure a certain number of people. Um, our study looked at what that exact number is. 
And we found that vaccines are harming um, approximately every other person, meaning if you flip a coin, you will determine whether or not you are harmed by a vaccine. And that is staggering evidence uh, because it suggests that vaccination is harmful to our society and to our, to our bodies, and that it's, it's not helping in the way that we thought it was helping. And that creates a very serious public health issue and even a national security crisis. The United States military is having a difficult time staffing, meaning hiring soldiers to serve in the United States military because these children have neurodevelopmental issues, they have diabetes, they are obese, and have all of these chronic illnesses that are limiting them from serving in the military. Um, our evidence highlights the United States government data that confirms that to be true. And our experts discuss these, these matters as well. Um, this, this will be no surprise to individuals and scientists who have studied vaccination because vaccine ingredients are naturally suspect. Um, vaccines contain neurotoxins such as aluminum and the flu vaccine has mercury, for example. And historically, there was mercury in other vaccines as well. And this is the core issue in our litigation, that all vaccines are experimental for four important reasons. And we prove these four reasons in court with authoritative government documents. Number one, fake placebos. When I look at the vaccine product insert, I see that no vaccines were tested formally by the FDA or by um, the manufacturer submitting studies to the FDA. No vaccines were tested with a genuine placebo. Um, for example, when the manufacturer approved the HPV vaccine, they gave a Gardasil carrier solution to the quote unquote control group. And this is a serious scientific problem because a control group is supposed to receive nothing, literally nothing. Or, or and by literally nothing, I mean the most they can receive is saline. As long as it's, uh, something that looks like the pill or looks like the injection, that 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 would qualify. But Gardasil carrier solution has aluminum in it, and it also has other suspect ingredients. And so when the girls who receive the Gardasil carrier solution are compared to the girls who receive Gardasil, they have the same number of injuries, which allows the manufacturer to claim that the injuries are unrelated or there is no causation. And that is a problem because what the manufacturer should do is compare girls who receive Gardasil to girls who receive nothing, or alternatively, girls who receive a saline solution. So this problem is systemic for all vaccines. Um, we looked at every single vaccine product insert, every single uh, government document that related to these placebos and controls and confirmed there is precisely zero vaccines ever that have been compared to a genuine control group. The government um, is not good about publishing this, this information 
For example, uh, for Gardasil, number three, the third Gardasil shot, I had to dig very deep in the FDA documents to find that the group called Control Group actually received two Gardasil shots. So the manufacturer compared girls with three Gardasil vaccines to girls who had two Gardasil vaccines. And because they both had the same number of injuries, the manufacturer said it's safe. But if you are a scientist or lawyer reviewing the documents, just the FDA product sheet, you would see that they compared Gardasil to a control group. That's all they say, it's just a control group. You have to dig very deep in the, in the documents hidden by the FDA to find that it was not a control group. It was girls who had two Gardasil vaccines. So there is a very big problem in the pharmaceutical industry with hiding this information. Why? Why would the pharmaceutical industry and the United States government hide the information about control groups? We think the reason is that this information, this data is so staggering it is so important and dramatic that the government and the pharmaceutical companies do not know what to do with it they are on a single track of promoting vaccination even though vaccination is not helpful vaccination is harmful it's not helping with mortality and so this problem needs to be resolved and I think that control groups are the method to do it. Another problem that is inherent to vaccination is that all vaccination is studied with short-term testing only at the FDA level. For example, um, we looked at the uh, vaccines for measles and diphtheria, and we found that when the FDA did studies on whether those vaccines are causing injury to the to the participants in the uh, in the clinical trials, they only had short-term testing. Sometimes they would only ask parents and patients for up to 30 days. Sometimes only three days was the monitoring period. Um, that's not good. Um, the monitoring period should be years because the way that vaccines work is that they alter the immune system. They uh, are designed to create antibodies uh, within the body. And this alters the entire body because uh, where is the immune system located? The immune system is located everywhere in your body. There um, is another, which means that there, that, yeah. Sorry, there is another thing that they didn't, uh, that they, where they cheated us. They said the vaccinated are those people who got two shots and only uh, it, they they didn't they didn't care for the first two weeks everything that happened in the first two weeks was was so-called unvaccinated although those people got two shots and many side effects of the of the mrna of the rna shots were happening in the first two weeks and they didn't count them as vaccinated so this is a well, this is another it's not only short term but they just switched off the first two weeks from observation. They didn't observe them, they didn't count them, and all the myocarditis thing, all those complications with young people with heart failures, suddenly, sudden death from, they happened some days after the shots. So in you, there, they, they, are, they were blind, systematically blind for such things. You were correct, Dr. Wodark, and 
your your point evidences a very key failure of the vaccine manufacturer and also the government. The government changed the definition unfairly. Um, the government takes this definition unvaccinated and includes within that definition people who received a vaccine, people yes. who received a vaccine within the first two weeks, which is when a individual is likely and an individual who does get injured is likely to experience that injury within the first two weeks. Yes. So they mixed this up. This allows the yeah. government. Yeah. They mixed up. Um, this allows the government. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. They mixed up immunized, which the where the antibodies were 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 to be shown were showing up. Uh, they mixed up immunized and 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 just injected. They yes. took it as the same. It is not. I I agree, and this is why in our court documents, the very first thing that we ask the court to do is agree on definitions. Yes, it is so important that we yes. all have the same starting place to think. What does unvaccinated mean? Until we know what that means, it's very difficult to have a whole scientific conversation about vaccination. Yeah. Right, definitions are essential. And the unvaccinated in our study meant individuals who have never received a vaccine in their lifetime. And we expect that future studies will involve different types of, uh, of groups. There will be groups that have never received a vaccine in life, other groups that are partially vaccinated. Um, there could be control group studies where people are vaccinated for everything but COVID. And we can look at at what the effect of COVID is, and the these definitions are are, are very important. Um, another problem with vaccines is that they lack long-term surveillance. The only surveillance system in the United States, like in Europe, is passive surveillance. And so, uh, like VAERS, for example, meaning that the government does not proactively ask people questions about their experience with vaccines. Rather, the government just sits back and waits for doctors to report vaccine injuries. And there is a whole system uh, that explains why doctors are not reporting vaccine injuries. They were trained not to recognize them um, with the exception of certain uh, holistic doctors. So vaccines are experimental. Um, in our evidence, we found that there are surprising data points that are not discussed often in society. For example, educated parents are less likely to vaccinate. And there are many doctors and healthcare workers who reject vaccination for themselves. Um, we found that key government documents recognize that the vaccine schedule is experimental because of these uh, failures in industry to study. And even the vaccine uh, inserts admit this information if you know how to find it. We calculated the number of un completely unvaccinated people in the United States and found that it is about 800,000 people total. Um, however, that number is growing because more people are realizing the dangers of vaccination as we present this information to them. Um, one of the ways that 
my group is able to provide this information to the public is we have a very helpful website and I would be happy to share my screen so that you can see what that looks like. This is our website. Um, it's called vaxcheckers.org. And that is me right there. I'm pretty sure that looks like me, right? <laughs> and that is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, and that is Shira Miller, uh, Dr. Shira Miller at a conference, a medical conference that we did recently in 2019. At this website, individuals can find our very important documents, uh, for example, our numerical proofs, such as the pilot survey graphs that I discussed. Um, another very key uh, page here is our expert reports. Um, these are our experts and their reports. Um, I really want to call attention to this particular report, this vaccine mathematics report. Um, Again, this is the most comprehensive mathematical analysis that has ever been done on the risk of vaccination compared to the risk of the disease. And we also have other um, documents in our presentation where top researchers have published on the historical rates of disease and looked at what society would look like today if we didn't have mass vaccination. And one of the most important papers that I would like to call your attention to was published in the year 2020. And it is by researchers Hector Magno and Beatrice Gollum. And they published on PubMed and they looked at the benefits of the mass vaccination program. And to do that, they used historical data. So what you do is you take the rates of disease and death and hospitalization before vaccination. Mm -hmm. And then you compare those numbers to the current population level. It's pretty simple. It's just a uh, population modifier. And this allows you to calculate how many um, cases of disease have been uh, reduced by mass vaccination. And it allows you to calculate how many, uh, how many lives are saved from vaccination every every year in the United States. And this is all using government data. And the answer published in 2020 for the first time, no one, no one ever did this before. The answer is that vaccination prevents approximately 20 million infections per year. And the number of lives that saves is somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 lives per year. But, of the, but really it's more like 1,000 lives of people who are generally healthy compared to 10,000 of people who are suffering already a chronic illness, like somebody who has Ill, a chronic illness already, like a heart disease, they are more vulnerable to infectious disease. So th that's using that, that old data, you know, like from the 1930s and 1940s and extrapolating it to today. So then the question becomes, so if we assume that that's correct, that vaccines are saving that many lives and infections per year. Then the question becomes, do vaccines harm more than a thousand people per year? The answer is yes. Vaccines, according to our control group data, vaccines cause lifelong suffering and early death for approximately one half of the entire population, for approximately 175 million people. So for 1,000 people 
save, you have a lifetime of chronic illness for half of the population, which is a terrible bargain. Um, I understand that if somebody wants to get vaccinated, um, that that's their choice. Um, however, I don't think that vaccination can stand to the rigors of scientific analysis today. And for the first time, COVID-19 has made that issue a popular issue. Um, people are discussing it um, openly and freely. Um, doctors who previously were not willing to discuss vaccination are now open-minded. And that is a very interesting situation for our society. And Dr. Wodar, I want to applaud you for stepping into the spotlight and speaking openly about vaccination today. Yes, I'm very thankful for your presentation. It's uh, very, very interesting. I, I don't know whether I shall succeed to read all 400 pages, but I think I will have a deep look into your papers. And it's, it's very interesting. The methodology is very interesting too. I have a, I have a, a question concerning the legal situation. Uh, yes. with, what is with, the, with the, the reversal of burden proof? Who, who has the burden proof when such a, such a thing is, is used by the doctors? and is yeah. paid by insurances or is even is even uh, made uh, is even mandatory what who has the burden of proof to say there's that the benefit is better than the than the damage which is done yeah. well you have asked the question that my my scientist experts asked it was the first thing that they wanted to know who has the burden of proof um, the answer is the plaintiffs. Uh, I, I have the burden of proof to show that vaccination is dangerous. Um, the reason why is because um, the legislature and Congress set the vaccine schedule and the ACIP and CDC have determined in their expert opinion that vaccination is safe and effective. And therefore, it shifts the burden to me to go into court to prove that vaccination is neither safe nor effective. And yeah. Do um, you know, that, yeah. Do you know any country where is the other way around? I do not know any country that utilizes the precautionary principle where the burden is on the government to show that vaccination is safe and effective in court. Um, the burden was originally on the government. Um, in the sense that they, the government had to convince the legislature to implement these programs. In some cases, these vaccine programs are mandated. And the, uh, this issue of the burden of proof and the precautionary principle are guiding principles that will affect our lives in the next centuries. Because if we can correctly allocate the burden of proof on vaccines, that will help a lot for other things yes. as well, for yes. dangerous products. Yes. And so it's it's very essential that we as lawyers working in this field of vaccine rights take this issue very seriously and um, make sure that the burden of proof is properly allocated because science can help us a lot. Science can solve these major problems as long as we're willing to be honest and do genuine science. And I think that control groups are the most effective method to show vaccine risk to to calculate the exact number of vaccine risk because they're so simple um it's and, and that's what's so interesting to me about 
control groups. I, I love beautiful simplicity. Um, the control group is not right because it's complicated. It's right because it's simple. Um, the founder of epidemiology, John Snow, he studied cholera outbreaks in England a long time ago. And to do this, he used a control group. And all he did was he made an observation. He observed that the people drinking water from well A had a very high rate of cholera, a waterborne disease. But the people across town who were drinking from well B did not have a high rate of cholera. In fact, they had virtually zero cholera. It's so simple to show that probably the well is the cause of the cholera. But at the time that John Snow, Dr. John Snow, did this study, he um, that this this methodology was not well respected, and because cholera was not perceived to be a waterborne disease, and so some he was criticized, but his data was so simple that it could not be ignored, and his methods are the same methods that were utilized by scientists to show that cigarettes cause lung cancer. Today, we realize it is obvious that cigarettes cause lung cancer, but this was not obvious in the 1960s. It was only when scientists did very simple control group studies. Yeah, and there are, and there are all those, those possibilities of biases we have to discuss because you know these studies that that happen to be, to go, to, to be published about coffee and coffee making cancer. And they did. They just forgot that many coffee drinkers they smoke at the same time, and they just didn't <laughs> didn't look at this fact. So they found out coffee makes cancer, but it was the smokers among the coffee drinkers that got the cancer. So there are there are many many possibilities of a bias, and uh, this makes the whole thing so complicated. So it's very good to have a discussion in advance what we want to observe. We just spoke about this. We just said in the, in the before, in the discussion before we spoke about this, and it's very important to agree on the on the, the system of observation. How do we recognize if something bad happens? What is the effect we want to, we want to have? And so you have, and this should be a public thing. This should not be just left over to some producer of some stuff he wants to sell. Mm -hmm. This is a public. This is a public discussion in science, which should happen, and even not even in science, this should be even opened to ideas from from the public. So it should be a transparent discussion. When we want to find out something, on what science do we recognize whether it happens or whether it doesn't happen? We should agree on this, and this is not done. But the the whole the whole science is most of the science almost. Yes, the big, the big majority of all trials is paid by private investors, and and you know all those, you know all those results. There are those uh, reviews where they try to find out the correlation between the sponsor and the result, and they found out when the result was the uh, the this, that one which the sponsor wanted, the whole thing was published twice. As those results, uh, which well, the the, uh, the sponsor didn't like to hear, so they just had a, they had this publication bias, which was very very big, and there are other such bias, biases, and we I think it has to do a lot of of the way we do science, and we have to speak about speak about this too about the methods, 
about the, the conflicts of interest in science, about transparency of science, and um, also who is who is deciding which science will be done and which not. Yes. There are so many things we should know, and we don't, there's no sponsor for it. And we only have sponsors for those sciences where you can earn some money. Mm-hmm. You know, there was there was there there was a very good there was a very good process in the WHO some many years ago, <laughs> where there was there was a woman she was she was a former social minister in Switzerland and she had uh, she had uh, she had a committee and they tried to find out which advantages are there if we have pharmaceutical products patented. Wouldn't it be better to have them to just to to give money to those who try to find out the things we need, and no patent then? Mm-hmm. So so take some take the science and, and invest in science you want to do where you want to know something, or let the industry try to sell something and get patents for it, which is and they found it is much more expensive. This rewarding by patents is much more expensive than the money you, you would spend when you just say, oh, please, how many institutes are there? I, I have one billion for this problem, and who wants to do it? And and just have a competition among them, who does it best? Yes. And so, and so this was Mrs. Dreyfus. Uh, she was the she was the one who was the president, and the the publication is still available in the WHO. I don't know whether you can still download it, but it was about uh, it was about uh, public uh, public health and intellectual property rights was the t- the title of this publication. Mm-hmm. It was a very very good very important study they tried to make, and we should do this again. I think we should we should have this topic in mind when we we speak about science and how to finance science and to get to get the results where we really produce more health than damage. Oh. Yes, I really enjoy hearing that wisdom. Um, You have correctly identified one of the key issues to solve the scientific problem, and it is transparency and the genuine interest in truth. Um, By shining the light on the scientific process and creating a transparent system, that will solve a lot of issues. And by allowing competition into the system itself, that creates an inherent mechanism for the best, yes. of the best to rise to the top, and now and, we profit from from activities like you have, where there are people that voluntarily come together, and who do what the normal science doesn't do, and what the the, the whole machine of science has has forgotten. You yeah. you try to 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 repair those damages which were Thank done you. by the false system, and this yes. is very very. It is very good that you that you that you do such things, and I very much appreciate. And it was very interesting to to hear your results. Thank you. Thank you. Could I um, ask uh, like two questions? Um, do you know, like I, I, one thing I wanted to share is that you know in Berlin uh, there was just a few days ago a, a conference by the um, uh, WHO. And I mean, bizarrely, you know, when you when we hear about the results that you have here for the, uh, you know, the usefulness of vaccination, so there was just like I think it was uh, 2.6 billion dollars uh, um, um, pledged to the, uh, the um, for uh, for vaccination uh, against polio, 
So, I mean, this is absolutely absurd and the money could have, should have been much, uh, you know, better spent on something else. Obviously, when you, when we hear this, in, in, in fact, it's like maybe, maybe causing, whereas we, you know, what, what your research suggests is going to cause a lot of damage to people. Um, that's just a remark. But I have two questions like um, the vitamin K shot. You mentioned that also does damages. That's something I'm, I'm maybe if you could just make a few remarks. And also, what's the mechanism between maybe like heart disease and vaccination? I can understand with, with um, cancer, as we've discussed with the um, COVID-19 vaccine, is maybe if your so-called vaccine, if your immune system is compromised, there's maybe, a, a, you know, like a more likely, you're more likely to maybe develop uh, cancer. But um, how is that working with the heart disease? Do you know anything about that mechanism? I do. Uh, thank you so much for asking. Um, so what I'll do is first address the point you asked about the vitamin K shot. So in our study, we looked at children who received the vitamin K shot um, at birth. The vitamin K shot contains aluminum and benzyl alcohol. Um, if you look at the contraindication table for benzyl alcohol, you cannot give it to anyone under two because a little baby liver cannot process alcohol. And so it causes damage to the child. And that's this group here. This yellow group is the group that they receive the vitamin K shot. So the vitamin K shot is very dangerous and mothers should avoid it. That's, that's what our study shows. In fact, the, the healthiest group in our study was the group that never received a vaccine, never got a vitamin K shot, and their mother was not vaccinated during pregnancy. That's the healthiest group of all. Okay. Um, and then the other question that you asked, can you remind me the other question, please? Well, that was the, the, the connection between the vaccination and the heart, heart issues, like heart diseases. Is there anything oh, sure. tangible? Yeah, so um, heart disease, surprisingly, is immune-mediated. Uh, our expert PhD immunologist um, produced a document where we provide uh, top vetted government citations that show that um, your immune system regulates your blood flow, it regulates your uh, cardiovascular system, and that if the body's natural immune system is allowed to thrive and work as it does, that the rate of heart disease decreases to, in our study, it was zero. Um, whereas the background rate over over someone's lifetime is um, 48%. So let me put that into perspective just to show that vaccines cause heart disease. Um, so the best way for me to show that is with my graph. Let me pull that up. Okay, this will only take two seconds. Okay, so this is the background rate of heart disease in the adult population in America meaning one out of every two people or 50%, 48% have heart disease in some form. But in our group, where we surveyed 210 adults, that is um, zero. So the problem with this is that, um, with this is that this shouldn't make any sense because if vaccines were not causing heart disease, then we should have, this number should be 48% or at least should be somewhere close to it. It's fine, zero. That means vaccines are causing heart disease. And this would be like, um, imagine you flipped a coin. You would have to flip the coin and it to come up heads 210 times in a row for there to be no correlation. And, and imagine, imagine how many times you could flip a coin and it comes up heads 
every time in a row, maybe 10 times max you might get. Um, but to get to the number 210 is insane. Like you could spend lifetimes trying to get to that number. So there's clearly a correlation between heart disease and vaccines. Um, and that's exactly what our expert PhD immunologists found as well with published data. Well, um, so, so again, I invite people to check out our, um, our information, which is available at Vax Checkers, V-A-X-C-H-E-C-K-E-R-S.org, VaxCheckers.org. Yeah, we'll also provide the link on a maybe Telegram channel so people can check this out. I think it's, it's very, very important, you know, because also the, the whole, um, I mean, these people is, are so much like fear-driven when they decide to vaccinate their children. I mean, with these standard uh, vaccines, and uh, but now we see that they actually seem to be putting uh, their children at a very high risk of, of uh, you know, like experiencing all kinds of diseases later on. So it's one should be really careful. It seems. Yes, um, you know, you you raise a very important point. Um, I really enjoy speaking with both of you. You tend to bring up the very root cause, and I think it's because you've been focusing in this in this area. You mentioned fear. Um, this is a very root issue in society. When people are afraid of infectious disease, that's what really causes them to vaccinate. When you know, fear in society is a um, it's like a lever people can manipulate fear. And so, to really solve our issue, not just on the vaccine issue, but throughout society, um, we maybe need to rethink the things that we are afraid of or, or the things that cause us to fear in the first place. And I think there is um, one root issue seems to be our desire to um, immediately want to blame someone or something for the cause of our issues. And one, one thing I've realized with uh, people who tend to be sort of consciously aware or just really intelligent is that they won't immediately rush to blame First, they'll think of what caused the system, you know, like what is the underlying mechanism that caused the problem in the first place? And then they might ask, well, why would society create this problem in order to create a solution? For many researchers, that leaves, leads them into a discussion of the Hegelian dialectic, you know, problem, reaction, solution. But I think it's also much deeper um, because sometimes we create issues in our lives that end up healing us later on. For example, have you ever had a health issue that came up in your life and it caused you to research something about health and now you're better for it? This happens all the time. It's the same reason why an athlete goes to the gym. He goes and he sort of hurts himself with lifting weights because he's, he's strengthening. He's getting stronger. By testing his system, he becomes stronger. Well, we have the same opportunity in society. Um, we can immediately blame big pharma and they have plenty to blame. <laughs> there is no doubt there. Um, or we can realize why as a society we created an institution as large and powerful as Big Pharma um, in order to teach ourselves some very important lesson about humanity. And yes. once we learn the lesson, oh, what a relief. This is, this is good parenting. You know, how often do you want your children to learn lessons? It's almost all you want to do. You know, you want to teach them lessons. You hope they learn. And then they'll be independent and strong and free. You really want someone to learn a lesson. So oftentimes that means not, not rushing to blame and realizing. For example, I, um, some of the guests 
um, and presenters that you've had in this conference um, have discussed uh, transhumanism, um, which is a very interesting topic. And I think that that's what vaccines are part of. They're part of a much larger issue involving this idea of modifying the body through an artificial method in order to achieve some um, scientific outcome. And, and, that, and so when we learn the lesson about altering our biology, our natural biome, um, it allows us to have a greater protection against the bigger threat of uh, a transhumanism. And, and I think that lesson, once learned, is very valuable. So I would ask, why does society learn this lesson on vaccines? Well, let me tell you something about vaccines. It is the, one of the most studied issues. It is documented in medical records. We have an entire system to document it through the FDA and the CDC and all of these institutions. You almost couldn't pick a better issue than vaccines to study health. Because look at 5G, for example. We don't have medical yeah. records on 5G. We do, you know, whereas vaccines, you have this very detailed, thoroughly documented issue. So all we need to do as a society is learn the lesson, kind of, you know, step back from blame a little bit, just kind of get in that space of, you know, what can we learn? How can we work together? And that and that's going to include cooperation. It's going to include working with authorities, working with governors, yeah. nations. It's interesting because, you know, I, I the first it's going to be a pandemic future. First, first pandemic I, I experienced was the birds flu. And I thought afterwards, now we have learned something. Mm-hmm. And then I experienced swine flu. Oh, and I've, we, I found how we were cheated. Oh, no, I learned something again. Yeah, we found out what is behind WHO and so. And I thought now the thing, now I'm immune. We are, society is immune against such uh, fake pandemics. But no, it's not. Because it's the same as with the virus. The virus changes. And our immune system doesn't know the new version, yeah. so there there may be there there are ideas on both sides, and we have to be very watchful. And it's very good to know the systematic things behind. Mm-hmm. Why do people cheat? Mm. Yes. What structures do we need to recognize earlier if someone yes. cheats? Is it is it true? Why is, should it be global? Is it? Is it good to have global structures or is it better to have transparent smaller ones we, we, where it's easier to see if something goes wrong? So th- there are many things, system, so systemic things we should, we should have in mind to, to, to learn the right things in time. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good thing we could learn now. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Dr. Wodard. This is, you've correctly highlighted the main issue, which is checks and balances. If we can put in the correct checks and balances, transparency, genuine knowledge, like wanting to know the answer. Once those checks and balances are in place, we're ready for the next thousand years. We're ready for the the new generation, whatever that might be. I I hope a lot of it's organic living personally, but I know technology is going to be very involved. And so, um, you know, checks and balances is essential for us to navigate the future. And Dr. Wodog, I hope that you are at the table Hoping to um, decide yeah. the checks and balances for our I will buy some kilos of your optimism, please. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think we 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 are able to. We are clever enough to to find out in time the next time when something happens and to learn in time. Thank you so much for your very good data and for your very good for the very good discussion. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you.
Me too. Thank yeah, you. Thanks so much, Mr. Glazer. Fantastic. Thank you. Have a good day. Goodbye then. Um, Bye -bye. Ja, Wolfgang, wir sind am Ende der Sitzung angekommen. Ich finde, wir haben wieder extrem viel gelernt. Ähm, ja, wir haben noch ein kleines Abschlussvideo. Uh, with the vaccine that was introduced, and a song was uh, made, which is which is very very illustrative. Now I wanted to re remind you, at uh, these times, we are uh, uh, dependent on economic uh, support. The committee to continue its no, not ourselves personally, no, and we would be grateful if you were to support us, the committee. Now, uh, have a nice uh, Friday afternoon, a nice weekend, and we meet again next week. Until then, goodbye. Um, regarding the question around, um, did we know about stopping humanization before um, it's entered the market? No. Uh, these, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. Science, my old friend I've come to talk with you again Wissenschaft, du altes Haus Ich kotz mich heute mal bei dir aus Was ist nur aus dir geworden Wissensfernen, dummen Horden Machst die eine Ostblocknote, du die Beine breit. Es ist so weit. All in the speed of science. Seit Galileo war schon klar, wer bei dir Hähnhause war. Wer dich bezahlt hat, kommt dich haben. Wie ein kleiner Stricherknabe gingst du mit jedem Freier mit, mit flottem Schritt. All in the speed of science, follow the science, sagen sie, und ohne jede Ironie. Setzen Sie die Staubschutzmasken auf, da steht verhilflich gegen Viren drauf. Doch Ihr Glaube dran ist stärker als Ihr Verstand, Hirn verbrannt. All in the speed of science, und jetzt sitzt Du auf dem Thron. Neuen Religion, der Diskurs, die andere Meinung, schon gestern bei der Steinigung, fest fröhlich ist, es liebt fröhlich singt, und so ging's mit dir dahin, all in the sea.
of science.